Has Noah's Ark been found? Is the ancient story true? Did Ron Wyatt correctly discover and document the remains of Noah's Ark? Hear the evidence, look at the pictures, and listen to the eyewitness testimonies. Sit back and enjoy these amazing documentaries and decide for yourself. Before the great flood, the world had become filled with wicked men, so much so that the Lord decided to destroy the face of the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The Lord chose Noah, a man of God, to build an ark in which the righteous would be saved along with some of the animals. Noah preached of conversion and repentance for 120 years, but only eight people gave their hearts to the Lord and entered the ark. The rain came, and the people sought the safety of higher ground, or the ark itself. But the angel of the Lord had closed the door of the ark, and it could not be opened. Probation had closed. It was too late. Death and destruction covered the earth. The thoughts of man were evil continually. God extended an invitation, but it was not accepted. This was a judgment of man. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground. God had saved his people through the flood, but they would spend almost one year in the ark, waiting for the floodwaters to recede and new life to begin. Noah and his family were anxious to leave the ark. Finally, Noah knew it was safe to leave. He offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord placed a bow of promise in the sky that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. The Bible tells us where the ark of Noah came to rest. The ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. But what is Ararat? The name Ararat, as it appears in the Bible, is the Hebrew equivalent of Urartu, ancient country of Southwest Asia, mentioned in Assyrian sources from the early 13th century BC. This area included parts of Eastern Turkey, Armenia, and Iran. Moses was not speaking of a specific mountain when writing Genesis. He was speaking of a country, Urartu. So the Bible was saying the ark came to rest in the mountains of the country of Urartu. In Eastern Turkey, across the valley from Mount Ararat, is the site we will be visiting. This area was first photographed in an aerial survey conducted in 1959 by Francis Gary Powers. Later, Turkish Lieutenant Duripinar spotted the boat-shaped object in these photographs. So in 1960, a group from the United States journeyed to the site, but they prematurely concluded it was just a natural formation. That same year, Life magazine featured photos of the site. Is there a historical record from ancient civilizations of Noah's Ark existing? 
Barosis the Chaldean wrote, It is said there is still some part of the ship in Armenia, at the mountain of the Chordeans, and some people carry off pieces of the bitumen, which they take away, and use chiefly as amulets, for the averting of mischiefs. Today, we can look at a map of Turkey, and see this site listed as Nuhun Jimisi, or Noah's Big Boat. Making the trip to the site, we landed next to the very large Lake Vaughan, which once hosted the ancient capital of Urartu named Tushpa, located along its shore. Heading out through the countryside, we see an extinct volcano. Crossing a mountain, we soon see our first glimpse of the famous Mount Ararat in the distance. In the shadows of Ararat is the city of Dobayazit that we pass through, heading toward the Noah's Ark site. Mount Ararat is a beautiful mountain, complete with a rich history of mountain climbers searching for the Ark, but without success. Across the valley, we stop and see the government-erected road sign, Nohan Jimisi, five kilometers up the mountain. On Ron Wyatt's first trip to the region in 1977, he didn't know where to begin searching, and he only had three days in the area. So he and his teenage sons prayed that their taxi would stall in areas where they needed to search. That day, God stalled their taxi in three different locations, and here is our first taxi stop. High on the mountain is the resting place of Noah's ship. The name of this mountain is translated as Doomsday Mountain, named so for the deadly event of the flood. As we drive up the mountain, we can see Lesser Ararat and Greater Ararat across the valley. Both are post-flood volcanic mountains that were not even here during the flood, and they would be the last place one should search for the Ark. We finally made it to the Ark. Looking at it from the stern, or rear, one can see the boat-shaped outline of the Ark. It has a rounded stern and a pointed bow or front. The symmetrical shape indicates that it is a man-made structure. Ron Wyatt made 24 trips out here to conduct tests and do research at this boat-shaped formation. Photos taken at different times of the year have brought out different features of the boat. There was so much convincing evidence uncovered at the site that the Turkish government declared this area to be Noah's Ark National Park. And yet today, the world is unaware of this amazing discovery. Using Google Earth, we can zoom in on the site with satellite imagery to see the Ark and also the visitor center that was constructed by the Turkish government. It was on June 21, 1987, that a ceremony was held on the mountain to commemorate the site as Noah's Ark National Park. Dignitaries from around the country assembled to break bread and celebrate this wonderful find. governor, military officers, and other key officials were participating in a celebration of discovery. Ron Wyatt was a special guest because of the extensive work that he had accomplished at the site. The visitor center would welcome guests from around the world to gaze upon the ark. As concrete was placed in the foundation by the governor and by Ron Wyatt, excitement was in the air. 
This was a monument to the mortal remains of Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark was found. The next day, an article appeared in Turkey's largest newspaper announcing Noah's Big Boat, open for tourism. Now, we make our way inside the visitor center to view the informative evidence on display. Various diagrams and photos are assembled to point out the important features of the Ark. Specimens from the Ark are also on display, including petrified wood and sea fossils from the area, which indicate this mountain is water-laid rock. A guest book shows us that people are visiting the site from all over the world. Many different countries are represented here. Hassan Ozer has worked in the visitor center since it opened. He has lived his entire life in a village here on the mountain, just above the Ark, and has a great deal of history associated with the Ark. His photo appeared in a Knoxville, Tennessee newspaper, so our team brought him a laminated copy for his own. Hassan now tells us some interesting history about the Ark formation. Also, uh, after the, that time, there was a, a light we can, could see in the night time uh, up on the uh, village. When we look uh, down to the outside, and people were uh, believing that uh, it's holy uh, things, and they, when they uh, come on to the next to the ark, this uh, light is going off, you know, we cannot find Somebody says that there is a 
uh, some gold we should go uh, dig it up and stuff like this they say especially when you come next to it it's going uh, off the light you cannot see anymore but they say after the uh, the government confirmed that that's the Noah's Ark there is no light anymore and uh, you know uh, that's that's make me uh, think it is Noah's Ark do you believe Noah's Ark actually existed? Couldn't a legend that sounds like a fairy tale really become proven fact? Well, the search has been going on since biblical times. And in a moment, you're going to meet some people who are positive they have found the Ark. Now, we know such claims have been made before. But a few months ago, these people came to 2020 with some new and intriguing scientific findings. We followed them to the mountains of eastern Turkey. And what you'll see is a bizarre adventure with a host of unlikely characters. Tom Gerald's story takes many twists and turns. That's the seductive beauty that brings them here, snow-capped Mount Ararat. The explorers looked for the ark there since that's the highest point around here. And as the floodwaters receded, presumably that's where it would have landed. But the Bible describes the mountains of Ararat, mountains, plural. Is it possible that the ark came to rest on one of the smaller sister mountains to Ararat? The boat-shaped site was first found and photographed by a Turkish army captain back in 1959. It was quickly explored and dismissed as a freak of nature. But Wyatt, an amateur archaeologist, rekindled interest in it a few years ago. He brought in Dave Fassel, a marine salvage expert, to assess it. The Doomsday Mountain team brought in some high technology to explore the oldest legend of man. They began scanning their site with a molecular frequency generator. It's a device used by surgeons to pinpoint cancer tumors, and it's been used by Fassel to locate underwater treasure. This time, the molecular frequency generator began to pick up a unique pattern of iron lines beneath the earth. Okay, bring that one up. They began placing ribbons along those lines. The finished shape, outlined by the ribbons, was that of a huge ship, the approximate length and width of Noah's Ark, as described in the Bible. The fascinating field of ribbons soon attracted higher academic interest. That looks like iron. Okay. Dr. John Baumgartner, a physicist with Los Alamos Laboratories, sent samples back to the lab for analysis and confirmed that the metal they were tracing with the ribbons was indeed iron. With the width and the length known, the only remaining question was depth. By locating the depth of the hull, they could determine if the boat-shaped object had the cargo capacity described in the biblical ark. To resolve this final issue, Wyatt and Fassel brought geologist Tom Finner to Turkey with his company's heavy-duty subsurface radar equipment. Gear like this located the black box cockpit recorder on the floor of the frozen Potomac River after the Air Florida crash. Suppose this rock were a foot or two feet underground. Would it give you a reading as to where that was? Could you locate it? Yes, we could. Is it possible that there will be a moment at which you'll say, this is a man-made object? Uh, the symmetry of the feature suggests it's about... Um, I hope to prove that the underground structure is in fact that of a boat. It was here, several miles short of the boat-shaped site, that a waiting game began for Fenner and the others. The party needed a final go-ahead from the Turkish government to complete their probe of Doomsday Mountain. Anyway, we're going to hang in like smell on a skunk till nothing left. Get this done. 
and then like the snow and the sky. The Turkish government stopped the exploration. What now? Since we were there, Barbara, things have cooled down, and they've sent their own team of scientists in to take a look at this site. It's a very fascinating location. Ground-penetrating radar was used on the formation to see what is inside. The reflections created a picture of timbers underground. This diagram shows us some of the main structural elements of the ark, including parallel and repeated patterns, indicating a man-made site. Indeed, there is something beneath that rock besides rock. A radar device developed by geophysical survey systems in Hudson was used on the mountain. The device called SIR is used by energy exploration companies to analyze what's below the Earth's surface. According to SIR, something man-made is under Mount Aridog. This data is not, it does not represent natural geology. It's, it's a man-made structure. These reflections are occurring very per periodic, too periodic to be random nat natural type interface. Compared to an aircraft carrier 1,000 feet long, we can see the Ark is quite large. The Ark was a high-tech vessel that was designed to survive a catastrophic flood that would destroy the surface of the Earth. Complete with a keel, keelsons, and anchor stones, it was truly a work of art designed to save the human race from annihilation. The Bible tells us the Ark was 300 cubits in length. The Ark formation has been measured to be 515 feet long, which is exactly 300 Egyptian cubits. Moses, when writing the Genesis account, would have been accustomed to using the longer Egyptian cubit of 20.6 inches. The Bible mentions an earlier cubit, cubits according to the former measure. This references the Egyptian cubit, which was divided into 28 digits, making up the cubit rod. Many centuries later, the 18-inch Hebrew cubit was developed and implemented. At the Tel Megiddo in Israel, Solomon's gates can be measured to exactly six Egyptian cubits, showing further evidence of its early usage. One can easily see the rib timbers near the stern on the starboard side of the ark. This was part of the superstructure of the ark, much like ships are constructed today. Horizontal boards would have been attached to these vertical ribs. Here we can see vertical fissures between the ribs. These ribs run perpendicular to the mud flow around the structure, indicating once again, man-made construction. Local village boys greet us as we take a look at the starboard side of the ark, which curves uphill toward the front of the ark. This side is predominantly buried in the soil. The outside of the bow, or front, is just before us and then we scan down the starboard side to see the top of the rib timbers. In the distance, we can see Mount Ararat and Lesser Ararat. We now pan over to the port side of the ark near the stern. This side is less preserved, but we can see one large rib timber standing at attention. It has been beautifully preserved and has retained the curvature of the hull. From here we look toward the front of the ark and we can see a large hole which was blown open in 1960 when the first group came here from the United States to inspect the site.
We are now standing on the middle deck of the ark, and now pan over to the interior of the port side, where we can see four horizontal protrusions in a row. They are arranged in a regular pattern, indicating man-made construction. These would have been horizontal deck support timbers, extending toward the middle of the deck. At the stern, we can see the symmetrical shape of the boat, including the center mound, where the decks have collapsed one on top of another. Continuing to inspect the stern, we can see five objects in a row along the inside port area of the deck. These have been measured at regular intervals and appear to be vertical posts that would have supported the deck. The ark originally came to rest higher on the mountain, but was pulled down to its current location amidst a lava or mud flow, which impaled it on this rock outcropping. Ron Wyatt was operating his ground-penetrating equipment before Turkish authorities when he spotted an object just below the surface. What they found was this beautiful deck timber. It was tested at Galbraith Labs for organic carbon. The level of organic carbon was extremely high, thus proving this object was once living matter consistent with wood. Mr. Wyatt was able to display the deck timber on CNN when he was interviewed on their network. The timber is in three layers, much like plywood, with glue oozing out at the end. This makes it stronger than one solid piece of wood. The outer area is covered in black pitch. Some nails can also be seen on its surface. This layering of wood may have been the gopher wood mentioned in Genesis. Just above the Ark site is the Uzengili village. Its former name in the 19th century was Nasser. This pronunciation is similar to Nicer, a village that the Babylonian Barosis described as being near the Ark site. Josephus in the first century said, its remains are shown there by the inhabitants to this day. This would tell us the Ark would be in an accessible location. These local villagers would have had a tourist trade accommodating visitors to the Ark. The visitors to the Ark would have stayed overnight here and would have bought souvenirs in the village. Evidence of this was discovered in 2000, when an archaeologist found this potsherd 20 yards from the Ark. On the concave side, it has a carving of a man using a hammer to drive a nail, much like Noah building the Ark. On the convex side, an ancient ink drawing shows a man releasing birds, matching the biblical narrative of Noah releasing a raven and a dove. This is just another piece of amazing evidence found here at the Ark site. Using radar equipment, Ron Wyatt discovered an open cavity on the starboard side of the Ark. Utilizing a core drilling technique, he was able to gain access to the interior of the Ark. Stunning evidence was pulled from the belly of the ship. Using an improvised long rake device, petrified animal dung was extracted from the hull. Next, cat hair was also pulled from the cavity. Then, a petrified antler was extracted. These are all items that one would expect to find in the bottom of the ark. The Bible tells us the antediluvians were skilled in metalworking. Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. This large metal rivet, or metal washer around a metal rod, was found by Ron Wyatt when he had taken a tour group to the site in 1991. 
The center rod had been struck while it was hot, causing it to flare out, holding the washer in place. Test results showed that it contained 8% aluminum metal. Aluminum metal is man-made, thus proving the site to be man-made. Skeptics have said Mr. Wyatt was lying about the testing, but was he really? When the Ark Discovery International team was at the Ark site, they used a metal detector to locate metal fittings on the Ark. This is a crescent-shaped piece of metal that had been a circular washer in its better days and was found near the bow on the port side. A portion of it tested at Galbraith Labs in Tennessee, and the results were stunning. It was 8% aluminum metal, just as Ron White's test had revealed. The test additionally showed a small amount of titanium metal that is also man-made. The ARC Discovery team continued its analysis at the site and located another fitting on the starboard side. A portion of it was sent to Galbraith Labs for testing, and again, there were incredible results. It contained 8% aluminum metal, 1.3% titanium metal, plus 3.8% magnesium metal, all indicative of the arc formation being a man-made structure. The Encyclopedia Britannica tells us, because of its chemical activity, aluminum never occurs in the metallic form in nature. These unique metal components are special markers that were left behind which proved the site is without a doubt a man-made structure utilizing high-tech construction techniques consistent with what we should find in Noah's Ark. Modern man didn't discover how to make aluminum metal until around 1900, but the antediluvians had this knowledge in their day. Other metal fittings were found on the port side of the deck. Our metal detector picked up metal readings where a rectangular plate was positioned on a flat plane. This plate originally had six rivets, one is still visible on the left side. Other metal fittings can be seen around the Ark in various locations. The metal fittings have different colors from the surrounding material, making it easier to locate them at the site. On the outer portion of the Ark, at a higher level, we were able to see this object that appears to be a metal cap on top of a vertical post. has an X impression embossed in the center of it. The left side of the cap is missing, but the top and this immediate side are still affixed to the post. The X impression is indicative of a man-made structure with the 90-degree angles. Our second taxi stop is the village of Kazan, where large anchor stones can be found that once hung from the rear of the Ark. Just down the valley from Noah's Ark, we come to the village of Kazan, where portions of the Ark's directional system were released, thus allowing the Ark to float more freely. This village was known as the Place of the Eight, named so for the eight survivors of the flood. This is the first area that Noah and his family lived after the flood. The large anchor stones were hung from the rear of the ark to keep the rear facing oncoming waves. It created a type of resistance in the water, allowing the rounded rear of the ark to fend off powerful waves that would critically damage the ark if struck broadside. This is our first anchor stone. 
measuring 11 feet in height with four feet embedded in the ground, it is actually the largest and most beautiful anchor stone found to date. A tapered hole was drilled into the top of each anchor stone, a five inch opening on one side and a seven inch opening on the other, allowing a rope to be pulled through and a knot tied. It was designed to be lifted while in the water when it would weigh less, thereby preventing the top from breaking off. The most striking feature is the crosses that have been carved on the anchor stone. Early Christians came through this area and recognized these objects as biblical items from the ark. They carved crosses on these anchor stones, representing Noah and his family. The largest cross here represents Noah and is of the crusader style. The diamond shape of the cross above was Nimrod's sign when he was alive. The diamond represents the ark that he took credit for. Then the vertical line is the pathway to heaven, with the crossbar representing heaven. The Egyptians had an adaptation of this symbol called the Ankh. Smaller anchor stones or drogue stones can be found near the Mediterranean. This is one of the largest you will ever see outside the Noah's Ark area. The next anchor stone is partially buried in the ground with five crosses. The largest cross represents Noah. The next smallest, Mrs. Noah. Then the three smallest are the sons of Noah. At the bottom is a possible image of the Tower of Babel, which was built around 200 years after the flood by Nimrod and his rebellious followers. This particular stone has seven crosses, with the eighth having been removed at some point in time. This stone has a large cross representing Noah. The next smaller cross on the bottom left is Mrs. Noah. The next three smaller crosses represent the three sons. Then the three smallest represent the wives of the sons. This stone does not have any carvings on it, but it does have a hole drilled through the top. Other stones have been found buried, but they have no inscriptions. This stone had a hole drilled in the left side, then on the right, we can see ancient inscriptions. Vandals have broken this stone, but you can see where the hole once was in the top. Crosses have also been carved on this stone. Five crosses are on this anchor stone. And as we look at the top, we can see where the hole has been broken off. Outside the village of Kazan is a large object that has the appearance of petrified tree bark and with unusual characteristics. As far as we know, there's nothing else like this anywhere. Nobody's ever... Oh my goodness. It's got crosses uh, that are very faintly carved out. You got, a big, you got a big one here. You got a small one right there. One here. One here. They're, they're harder to see over here. And this is petrified wood? Well, it like Ron it. said he thought it was petrified bark. tree bark. Right. If you look at the, you ever see, it looks like a little bit like pine bark. It sounds like metal. What <laughs> would the anchor stone be wood? Would this isn't an anchor stone. Oh, oh I see. This, is, this was just like something that uh, was on the ark, right? Well, Ron <clears throat> theorized that this might have been the or part of the cover. You remember? At one point it says, and uh, uh, Noah came out of the ark and he took the cover off, or he yeah. threw the cover off. He, and of course that's just speculation, we don't have a way of knowing, but this is a rather unique thing. It has the appearance and the texture of some kind of a bark, 
but you know it is stone. That is the cross. That is the cross. That is incredible. It has it's very hollow sound. Very hollow. It sounds like metal. But it's just a. Well, it's a. It's just that's its harmonic. Right. Yeah, my resonance. You're right. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, not, not many stones do that. That's true. <coughs> yeah. With the sun coming out. There's, well, I think there's eight crosses on it. We've been able to find seven. I think there's an eighth one up there. Our next taxi stop is the home of Noah, near the village of Kazan. This photo was taken in 1977 by Ron Wyatt showing the walls of Noah's home. Since then, all the walls have been torn down by local treasure seekers. In the front yard stood this large tombstone. On the tombstone was a drawing of eight people and a boat on a wave. The second largest person was looking downward with their eyes closed. This indicates that this was Mrs. Noah's tombstone. After Mr. Wyatt showed this to someone, that person later hired others to exhume Mrs. Noah's 18-foot sarcophagus. Its depression in the ground is still visible today. Her jewelry was later sold on the black market for millions of dollars. Extending out from Noah's house are these ancient stone fences for containing animals. In Genesis, we are told that Noah practiced husbandry. In this case, we can see signs of animal husbandry. Some fences are more prominent than others, but they are all in straight lines. Uphill, behind Noah's home, is this large altar that he would have used to sacrifice animals to the Lord. It is approximately 10 feet in diameter and has a cube-like shape. In conclusion, we can say that the Durupanar, Noah's Ark formation, is full of evidence which confirms its authenticity, especially when we objectively consider all the information. Many books have been written about the discovery of the Ark. It has been featured in many newspapers and television programs, but most of the world is not aware of this beautiful discovery, which refutes evolution and proves the Bible to be truth. In God's timing, He will reveal this to all mankind. copy of this program through arcdiscovery.com. Given the shape of the thing and the size of the thing and where, where they found it, I mean, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck until somebody finds something else, uh, what else could it possibly be but Noah's Ark? There's a real soft place in the earth right under it. On June 16, 1987, Love. Ron Wyatt and a film crew from the United States of America traveled to eastern Turkey at the express invitation of the governor of the Turkish province of Ari. The purpose of this expedition was to participate in and film a ceremony which memorialized and commemorated a site located on Cessna Dog Mountain, known locally as Doomsday Mountain, as the landing site of Noah's Ark. The ceremony was the culmination of 10 years of meticulous, painstaking, often dangerous research by Ron and his associates. 
On the historic occasion of June 20th, 1987, the governor of RE has announced to the world that Turkish archaeological authorities agree with Ron's findings that the area under investigation is indeed the landing site of the legendary Ark. The governor, key military officials, local officials, and police have gathered in preparation for the ceremony. Due to Ron's contributions and efforts, he is made a guest of honor and is asked to actively participate in the dedication of the site. A visitor center is soon to be built and construction plans are well underway. As the governor completes the dedication speech, the ceremony is completed with the holy sacrifice of a lamb. As each participant shovels commemorative concrete into the first footing, a prayer is said for the Lamb's blood to cleanse the earth and keep the area free from evil. The governor has made the area an international park, and all faiths of the world are made welcome to visit and gaze upon what they believe to be the mortal remains of Noah's Ark. This saga began in 1977, when Ron began investigating a mysterious boat-shaped object which had been aerially photographed by a Turkish Air Force reconnaissance pilot while on a routine photo survey mission. The pilot, Lieutenant A. Curtis, took these photographs from an altitude of 10,000 feet, approximately 12 miles from Mount Ararat. They were examined by a Turkish captain assigned to photo interpretation who spotted the symmetrical boat shape in what appeared at the time to be a lava flow. As a result, a team of Turkish explorers and researchers examined the object and discovered that its dimensions were indeed near those of the Ark as stated in the Bible. Most particularly, those of the length. Dr. Arthur Brandenberger, a stereophotogrammetry expert, after studying the object and comparing the measurements to those in the aerial photos, he was quoted as saying, I have no doubt at all that the object is a ship. In my entire career, I have never seen an object like this on a stereo photo. The Bible does state in Genesis 8-4 that the ark came to rest in the mountains, that's plural, mountains of Ararat. Could it be that the Ark came to rest on a smaller sister mountain of Ararat proper? Have well-intending prior expeditions searched Ararat only because it is the highest point in the area, and as a result, overlooked and neglected other possible landing sites of the Ark? The 30 so-called eyewitnesses, and I don't doubt the integrity of these people, there are several stone formations on that mountain that resemble a boat but no one was ever able to get photographic proof. Also, I found that, say for example, in World War II, the pilots that flew by the mountain and made entries in their flight log that they had seen a boat-shaped formation on the mountain, they said that the boat-shaped formation was on the southeast face of the mountain. The person that wrote this, or quoted this in his book, said, that the log stated it was on the northwest face of the mountain. And so I found that some of the uh, 
reliable data had been misquoted in some of the books in an attempt to uh, convince people that the boat perhaps was in a different site than it really was. And so given all of this information and the lack of proof, uh, we decided to look elsewhere. The sleeping volcano has been intermittently active throughout thousands of years and is also heavily glaciated. Ron can't see how a wood structure could have possibly survived on a mountain that has constantly been scoured by lava and glaciers for over 5,000 years. During his studies, he makes note of the fact that not one well-documented source states specifically that the Ark came to rest precisely on Mount Ararat. However, the Bible does state in Genesis 8-4 that the Ark came to rest in the mountains, that's plural, mountains of Ararat. Could it be that the Ark came to rest on a smaller sister mountain of Ararat proper? Have well-intending prior expeditions searched Ararat only because it is the highest point in the area, and as a result, overlooked and neglected other possible landing sites of the Ark? Point by point, Ron begins to build a case for the possibility of the Ark not being on Mount Ararat proper. Due to these conclusions drawn from his extensive research, he is more intrigued than ever concerning the possibilities of the site, which was explored and summarily abandoned by the 1960 expedition. At long last, in 1977, after 17 years of waiting, research, and dreaming, Ron has fulfilled his obligations and is able to begin actual field work in eastern Turkey. He hires a Turkish driver and assistant named Dilavar to aid him in his work. Over the years, this man becomes a trusted friend and ally. Upon first arrival and examination, he finds the area to be wild and intimidating in its natural ruggedness and beauty. He remembers wondering how he would ever possibly discover what he was searching for in this vast, lonely region. The country is immense, its wide, expansive vistas, and Ron finds it to be rich in geologic history. The area is also blessed with the wealth of many wondrous relics from antiquity and treasures from civilizations past. One soon becomes enchanted by the natural beauty of the region and develops a sense of being lost in time. In determining precisely where to begin his investigations, Ron approaches the matter differently than his art hunting predecessors. Instead of focusing his search on Mount Ararat, he began with a broader scope of vision. He feels strongly that an occasion as momentous as the landfall of Noah's Ark would be made record of in history and ancient legend by local inhabitants of the region. His insight and intuition were to pay off handsomely. 
He began by visiting and talking to villagers in the general proximity of the boat-shaped object. After several days of becoming acquainted with them and earning their trust, he gets the needed directions to the general area he has awaited so long to visit. At long last, here is the object which has held his fascination for so many years. And here we are at last, gazing upon the mortal remains of the great boat that Noah and his family rode to safety. When I arrived at the boat-shaped object, I was amazed at how much it looked like a boat. Uh, if you've ever seen a boat that had a hole in it and had partially sunk down to where just the railings of the boat were above the water, this is exactly what I saw sitting out there on that mountainside. The site is located approximately 15 miles south of Mount Ararat and is known locally as Doomsday Mountain. The elevation is approximately 6,375 feet above sea level. Ron takes the dimensions of the object and finds it to be approximately 515 feet in length. His data corresponds with the original aerial photo survey and ground measurements which were made by both the Turkish and American teams. He finds it to be generally in the same condition as the 1960 expedition had described it. The object appeared as a long, boat-shaped semi-oval with a mound in the center having 20-foot-high earth-packed rims. Ron would like to take samples for chemical analysis, but at this point in time has no permits allowing him to do so. Although no conclusive evidence, other than the dimensions and obvious boat shape concerning the object possibly being the Ark, can be drawn from this first encounter, Ron is determined to return at a later time, if and when he can get a permit to excavate. He feels strongly, intuitively, that there is much more here to be learned. However, Ron has made note of the fact that the strata where the object rests is sedimentary, cretaceous, water-laid rock. This is an important point for purposes of documenting this area as the possible landing site of the Ark. As Ron continues his search for possible signs and traces of the legendary ship, he continues to befriend and talk to the villagers of the area. As he does so, more mysteries of the region begin to unfold. These people live today as they have for generations past. They tend their flocks of sheep and cattle and wander through their respective territories from season to season in a timeless ritual as a means for survival. They are a hearty breed of people and manage to survive in one of the harshest environments on the planet. They live in a rugged, unforgiving land that is both cruel and inhospitable. It is riddled with major earthquakes and has major unpredictable cold and hot spells during summer and winter. During winter, wolves freely roam the countryside and there are massive avalanches. In summer, it is hot and arid and sudden deadly windstorms arise. 
As illustrated here, one can see large clouds of dust from a windstorm moving and crawling like wraiths over the huge black lava beds at the base of Ararat. At every location Rod visits, Mount Ararat stands as a sentinel over the land and mysteries she has guarded for thousands of years. The Turkish word for Mount Ararat is Aridar, which translated into English means the mountain of pain. This is an appropriate name, as many climbers have lost their lives on her slopes during adverse conditions. Notwithstanding the dangers normally associated with climbing any mountain, Aridar is a high, lone mountain rising abruptly from the plains of Aras of 3,000 feet to a height of approximately 17,000 feet. Her majestic presence is a constant reminder to Ron that this area may indeed be the cradle of civilization. The thunder from lightning on Ararat is not the only thunder this captivating region has known. In ancient times, this area was a buffer kingdom between rival empires. And many times throughout the centuries, has this land known the thunder of hooves and the clash of steel from fierce rival warriors' weaponry. The local villagers who have come to know and trust Ron are familiar with every stone, boulder, and canyon of their land. Once again, directions they provide him with lead him to a remarkable series of discoveries. He finds three massive anchor-type stones, all approximately eight feet high and weighing several tons each. All are similar in proportion and design, and have eight distinct crosses, which are carved in the stone, in a pattern which Ron and other experts believe refer to the eight survivors of the flood. The placing and alignment on the stones tell of their relationship to Noah and one another. This is called an iconographic representation. Ron elaborates. Like all the other grave markers in this area, the Valley of the Eight, this uh, marker once had eight crosses. Now these are beautiful representation of the ornate Byzantine cross dating back to approximately the third century AD. The large cross representing Noah is especially ornate. The one representing his wife is quite a beautiful design. Now we have the matched pairing here, the eldest son and his wife. These crosses are of the ornate style. We have this cross here that represents one of the sons uh, beyond the first son, and it matches with this one. Up here we have the representation of the other son, but the representation or the cross representing his wife is missing and apparently got broken away 
over the years. The alignment of these stones tell us uh, the direction from which the boat came uh, as it approached and the mountain that it landed on. One of these stones is approximately a quarter of a mile from the boat itself. Now, these stones, or this type anchor stone, is a very familiar object to the students of early uh, navigation. They were used by uh, many of the early civilizations, uh, the Phoenicians in particular, and the shores of the Mediterranean and the uh, floor of the Mediterranean is strewn with these stones. The difference that becomes obvious immediately is the difference in size. These giant pierced stones are similar to ancient anchor stones used in the Mediterranean for centuries and millennia. These pierced stones are like the large Bronze Age stone anchors from the Mediterranean. Tall, broad when viewed from the side, thin when viewed edgewise or end-on, tapered towards the top, and have rope holes at their upper ends. On all of these counts, therefore, they qualify quite readily as fitting the picture of stone anchors as Ron originally identified them. Only in size or scale do these stones differ significantly from their considerably smaller Mediterranean counterparts. If the size of the stone anchors implies the size of the boat or ship on which they were used, how much more should it be true for these stone anchors weighing several tons to be, by this standard, arc-sized stone anchors? As electrifying as these discoveries are for Ron, they're not the only reason for him to believe that this area is the possible landing place of the ark. Villagers tell Ron that the village in which the standing anchor stone rests is known as the Village of Eight. Also, this majestic valley, located a few miles from the village, is known as the Valley or Region of the Eight. None of the inhabitants of this region know how these names came to be. They've been passed down from generation to generation. Again, he clearly finds reference to the eight survivors of the flood. Here is another strong indication to Ron that someone from antiquity has left record of the landing place and survival of Noah and his family within this mystical and enchanting region. Upon Ron's return to the United States, he calls Dr. William Shea of the Biblical Research Institute of Washington, D.C. for help in sorting and analyzing his data. Dr. Shea has also been aware of the 1960 expedition and has for some time been interested in the boat-shaped object as well. He is most pleased to have the opportunity to discuss Ron's findings and to compare notes and thoughts. Dr. Shea holds a doctorate in archaeology and is also an MD. He has had over 130 professional papers published worldwide, has taught Old Testament history at Andrews University, and is an acknowledged expert in his field. I've never measured the exact distance, but if you stand on the object, you can see Mount Ararat in, in uh, the near, near foreground. 
Well, Mount Ararat is a, is a very beautiful and very interesting mountain, but uh, it has certain drawbacks when you think of the flood story in the Bible. Mount Ararat is a volcanic peak over 16,000 feet high. If you think about the ark coming to land on a volcanic mountain, that's not a very propitious spot for it to be salvaged if you're going to find any remains. In fact, the, uh, some of my friends who have been working on that particular mountain have been working on the northwest face where there's the great Ahura Gorge. Now that blew out in historical times. And it seems like to me that would be the very worst place to have a preserved uh, remnants of the ark. So uh, on the other hand, the site that we've been talking about in the mountains across the valley, those are sedimentary rocks and not volcanic rocks. Sedimentary rocks, water-laid rocks, the type of rocks that one would expect from flood activity. Another thing about Mount Ararat is that it's a, a glacial-covered mountain peak. Uh, I don't know the exact dimensions, and it varies according to the weather, of course. The, the glaciers shrink back in the summertime and they extend in the wintertime. But uh, several thousand feet of the mountain's top are covered with glaciers, and these glaciers, of course, scour the, the mountain, the rock of the mountainside. So if you had uh, an arc-shaped object up there, it would suffer from the same damage that the, the scouring of the rock would suffer from. Now, the formation uh, that we have, as it's been surveyed both uh, from aerial photographs and on the ground, it's been measured both ways, is 150 meters long, or almost 500 feet. If you take that long Egyptian cubit, assuming Moses is the author of the account, or the transmitter of the account, and apply that standard of measurement, it is interesting that this formation, either in the photographs or on the ground, has measured to essentially what would be 300 cubits long. Now that's a remarkable correspondence. It's not 500 cubits, it's not 150 cubits, it just happens to be 300 cubits long. And the biblical story just happens to record the length of the ark as 300 cubits long. On one occasion, Dr. Shea had made a trip to eastern Turkey and had the opportunity to examine some of Ron's discoveries, particularly the massive anchor stones. I've seen three of those stones in the field. One is in a village and two are out in the fields by the village. The first point that one can make in comparing with anchor stones, and we have many, many anchor stones to compare with. Anchor stones were the common way to anchor ships until iron came in about 1200 BC. Anchor stones are tall in one dimension. They are thin in another direction, and they have a hole at the top. Now, the other aspect of these stones is their iconography. Somebody has carved some signs into them, as you can see from this, this one right here. The large cross in the center would be Noah. The medium-sized cross to the right and below would represent Noah's wife. Three of the crosses up one side, above the arm of the cross, of the major cross, would represent Noah's sons. The other three crosses up the other side would represent the wives of Noah's sons. There's exactly eight crosses. There are eight people in the flood story, and these are engraved upon stones that look very much like anchor type of stones. These are Christian crosses, but they indicate that the people who put those crosses on these stones saw some type of connection between these particular stones and the idea of Noah and the ark and the eight people that were in the ark according to the biblical record. 
Now, these stones are very unusual and irregular in that they are not near any normal natural body of water. It seems evident to me that somebody either wanted to depict something like an anchor stone or actually used an anchor stone in this area. And yet, the nearest bodies of water are 75 miles to the southwest and 100 miles to the north. No normal, natural, reasonable explanation for why anchor stones would be used in this particular area. Ron and Bill agree that much progress has been made on Ron's first foray into the field. Due to the success of the trip and the strength of the discoveries made, Ron feels more strongly than ever that he is on the verge of a major breakthrough. As he reviews his data, the boat-shaped object continues to haunt him as it has for the past 17 years. Then, unexpectedly, a most surprising and fortuitous event takes place. Uh, uh, my disappointment at having to wait on a permit uh, at a, for a later date was offset by an earthquake that happened in 1978 that did a much better job of excavating the boat than I could have done in maybe a year or two years hard work. Ron is not prepared for the sight he's seeing. The earthquake has dropped the earth from around the sides of the remains, and the formation is now completely exposed. There, at 6,300 feet above sea level, in the mountains of Ararat, lies what appears to be the hull of a massive, ancient, man-made ship. The sides of the object are now clearly exposed, and the outline of the hull of a ship is now evident and clearly visible. It simply dropped the earth away from the outside of the boat and left the rib timbers and uh, other structures of the boat out there where you could see them. Also, there was a vertical split right down the center of the boat, which enabled me to measure the depth of the boat, plus get good, clean, fresh sample material out of there to have analyzed uh, to tell us more about the chemical composition of the boat. These two photos, post and pre-quake, give one an idea of the extent of nature's timely excavation job. The photo at left was taken in 1960 by the first party to examine the object. The photo at right was taken by Ron in 1979, shortly after the quake. It clearly shows the large quantities of earth which have been displaced from the sides of the object. Again, these two photos examine the object both post and pre-quake from yet another angle. In addition to this, the quake has cracked the object down the center, allowing Ron to take fresh samples of material for analysis. He also takes samples from around the object in order to compare the two for possible significant differences. Immediately upon Ron's return to the United States, he rushes the samples to Galbraith Labs of Knoxville, Tennessee for breakdown and analysis. The results are electrifying. 
Not only is there high carbon content, as in long decayed ancient wood, there are also traces of metal. Here are the first definite positive signs that the object is not just a natural phenomenon, but indeed may be man-made. Well, soil samples have been taken from the formation on two different occasions, in 1979 and again in 1984. It's the 1979 samples that first gave the clue that there is a distinct difference in the amount of carbon in the formation as opposed to the field outside of the formation. I have the reports here, and if there was wood in this formation, that kind of a reading with 5% of carbon content would be would point to it. That's the kind of reading you would expect to get from the decayed wood. Once we became aware that there were concentrations of metal in this boat formation uh, that were associated with what appeared to be structural remains, uh, the next obvious step was to investigate the site with the use of metal detectors. We set up a uh, expedition with permit to go out with uh, four types of metal detection equipment and with this we carefully uh, surveyed the boat and we laid out tape, survey tape on top of the ground or on top of the formation to indicate the position of the metal patterns in the boat. Included in the expedition of Ron and four other specialists was Dr. John Baumgartner a physicist from Los Alamos National Laboratories of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Using three types of sophisticated metal detection devices, they began to lay down colored survey ribbons in correlation with the metal detection readings on both the tops and sides of the boat-shaped object. Slowly, a pattern with regular features begins to emerge. The pattern reveals the form of a symmetrical internal subsurface structure of massive proportions. In August of 1984, this is really the next new step in the study of this formation. You could call the year from August of 84 to August of 85 the year of the metal detector. Because he took a metal detector over, went over the formation, and in First of all, he got positive readings around his metal detector. Second, as he studied it more with his metal detector, he, the readings not only showed some reading, but it showed readings in patterns. Now, during that year, from August of 84 to August of 85, he and several other co-workers went over that formation with three different types of metal detectors, as I understand it. And the results with all three different types of metal detectors were consistent. And they did indeed give a pattern as they laid out strips, uh, uh, which, which show you some of the patterns that they got. Now, they also got crosswise patterns and in a lengthwise patterning. And this was first discovered with the metal detectors. Since the negative and positive to these readings have been obtained using four different types of metal detectors, since one of these is species-specific in terms of the type of metal detected, since neither of these methods provides any positive readings for the field around the object, and since these positive readings can be correlated with visually observable features of the formation along the portion of one side of it, considerable confidence can be placed in the accuracy of these readings. 
Thus, the metallic distribution pattern of this formation, whatever it means, seems reasonably straightforward and clear. Whatever uh, is giving the positive readings on the metal detectors, presumably some type of metal, we're not sure what kind, would have to be patterned in the formation. And the question then is, why is it patterned in the formation? Well, uh, let me just give you a, a hypothesis, a suggestion. If you had petrified wood in this formation, and uh, the petrification takes case, uh, place by a process of mineral elements flowing through the wood and depositing in them, then you would expect the trace readings that those minerals would give to follow the pattern of the decayed timbers and the petrified wood, petrification process. And so one possibility would be that this is a reflection of the petrification process of an original form, which would underlay this, this formation as it now stands. When we did this metal detector evaluation of the boat formation, uh, we covered the sides of the boat also, the area that had been left bare when the earth fell away during the earthquake, and the rib timber patterns and the keel or keelson patterns were very obvious uh, there along the sides also. Now, another thing we did with these metal detectors where we spotted high concentrations, say, of iron, for example, Example, we were able to collect a sample of 91% pure iron that showed preferential gradients under microscopic examination. And in our language, that meant that this had been hand-worked. Uh, it was a right-angle bracket that we... Although this is an incredible breakthrough, Ron and the team realize that more data is needed before they can draw any conclusions as to whether or not this is a ship. Though exciting and promising, it remains to confirm this pattern with more details and deeply penetrating non-invasive equipment, such as the new subsurface interface radar scanner. Subsurface interface radar is a new high technology tool which allows examination of objects underground without preliminary digging or excavation. The principle is simple enough. Electromagnetic pulses, or short-wavelength electric energy bursts, are transmitted into the ground. Echoes from these pulses bounce back and are measured by a receiver. The echo time can be translated into readings which are graphically recorded on a continuous roll of paper, such as an electrocardiogram printout. Thus, objects beneath the surface of the ground level may be located and, to some degree, measured. In the summer of 1986, Ron and his team have assembled once again and have received the necessary permits from the Turkish government in order to perform the radar scan. Ron and the crew are poised and ready when, once again, the unpredictabilities of the region rear their heads and stop Ron and his team short in their tracks. We got back to America, raised the money, and made the arrangements to get a subsurface interface radar system out to eastern Turkey. We had the appropriate permit at this point in time. Now, we had been informed that we were in some danger of uh, 
uh, terrorists attacking us are taking us hostage. And in the light of this, the Turkish government provided a group of 30 commandos that accompanied us out to the boat formation each day. And they would go out and hide themselves in the crevices, uh, canyons and whatnot around the boat site. Now, uh, what happened just took a matter of seconds, but to me it seemed like uh, several minutes. Our Turkish commandos just rose up from literally from the earth where they had been hiding and decimated these terrorists with uh, automatic gunfire. Once again, the thunder of death and violence echo off the walls of Doomsday Mountain. The commandos take their work seriously, and these are the results. Out of necessity, the laws of these lands are harsh and strict, and these terrorists' guns are silenced forever. Ron makes the Turkish headlines, but not with the news he'd wanted. No one likes being a part of something like this. This effectively stalled our attempts to do a radar scan on the boat, and of course it was some time after that. Yet again, Ron has been dealt another blow. Every trip is extremely costly, and this one has been particularly so due to having the radar technicians and support teams involved. It is crushing, after so many years of working and dreaming, to be so near the end of one's quest, only to be halted again so abruptly. As he has had to do on so many occasions, he calls on almost superhuman patience and tolerance. And once again, he waits. Ron's patience and willingness to persevere pay off. In August 1985, he receives the necessary permits and clearance to perform the radar examinations. At long last, they perform the scan, and the results are stunning. Before their very eyes, the machine tells the story of what lies beneath the surface of the object. There are massive keelsons, deck timbers, open chambers, gunnels, and other various configurations which Ron and other specialists believe identifies the object as the remains of an ancient man-made ship. Basically, the radar scans show the same thing that the metal detector scans did, only with more detail. They show there is a pattern. They show there's a pattern of linear lines, there's a pattern of cross lines, and there's a pattern of uh, even distribution to these lines in both directions. Now that's precisely what you would expect out of the remains of a ship type object. Because you would have a keel, you would have parallel lines, which would be keelsons, and you would have the transverse uh, lines, which would be bulkheads and other reinforcing of the ship.
Immediately after the earthquake, uh, it was to measure the depth of the deposit or the remains of the boat uh, along the length of the boat. At the point where the deposit thickened, it was at that point that the upper decks began. And we found that there was, this was a three-tiered or three-decked boat. Now in, in 1985, 1986, and 87, we were able to measure this laterally also. This data with the data that we got from the radar scan uh, allows us to know what the boat looked like and to be able to reproduce a model, scale model of that boat within very close tolerances of what it actually looked like. After consulting computer specialists and careful, detailed review of years of research and combined data, Ron constructs a scale model of what his data tells him the Ark resembled. This is the best estimate of what Noah's Ark looked like. And we've designed this so that we can take it apart and show you what the inside looked like. Now the deck portion of the boat shows up very clearly on the radar scans. And we have reproduced that here in the deck portion of the model. We're delighted with the results, and at this point in time, personally, I can look anybody in the eye and say that this boat-shaped formation in eastern Turkey is actually the remains of Noah's Ark. We've gone about as far as we can go in surface survey work and even scanning work. There are other types of scans that could be done. I don't know that it would be that helpful really to get more scans. What we really need now is excavation. But I would say that each one of these positive steps does point directly identifying this formation as containing remains of Noah's Ark. But the final proof of the pudding ultimately must come from excavation. In terms of the importance of the location of Noah's Ark and the identification of it, I would say make three main points. First of all, as one goes through the history of the human race in the Bible, this stands as an important historical event, a very transitional event. It's an event that divides two eras in biblical history. So just in terms of history of the race, it's an important event. Uh, second, I would say that it will have far-reaching implications 
in the realms of both science and history. Uh, obviously, some scientific theories are going to have to be revised if we really have found a boat-shaped formation from diluvian times at the 6,300 foot level in these mountains in eastern Turkey. Uh, third, I would say that there is a religious teaching out of it. There is a theology in Genesis 6 to 9, the three chapters that cover the flood story. And I would say it reveals two sides of the character of God. It reveals the side of character of God as, as judge, and it reveals the side of the character of God as redeemer. It reveals the, his character as judge of the antediluvians for the nature of their civilization, yet his redemptive activity is shown in his graciousness and mercy extended to Noah and his family. Why do explorers risk their lives searching for the remains of the ark? Many have died in the quest. For some, surely the adventure is enough. But for most, there's more. A need, perhaps a hunger, to know more about our human heritage, our basic beginnings. Who are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? Do these captivating regions hold the secrets to our earliest beginnings as a race? Is this indeed the cradle of all civilization? What do these discoveries mean? Are they clues to the final answers to the questions of the birth of the human race? And if not, what is this mysterious ship-shaped object located 6,300 feet above sea level in the mountains of Ararat? Ron thinks he knows some of the answers. He believes it is Noah's Ark found. On June 20, 1987, in the mountains of Ararat, Turkey officially recognized the discovery of Noah's Ark. Located on a mountainside about 15 miles south of the volcanic Mount Ararat, the remains of the massive ship were dedicated during a special ceremony. Guest of honor was Ron Wyatt due to his 10 years of research at the site. The story began in 1957 during the Cold War when aerial photos taken of eastern Turkey while searching for Soviet missile bases revealed a strange boat-shaped formation in the mountains about 6,300 feet above sea level. Life magazine reported on the story after an expedition from the United States went to the site in 1960. Blowing holes in the strange formation, the members of the team came away with the conclusion that there was nothing there of any archaeological interest. Ron Wyatt, like many others, read the story, but he was of the opinion that the site needed further exploration. 
There had been many claims of seeing Noah's Ark on the volcanic Mount Ararat, but Ron knew that it was a stratovolcano, and he believed that nothing would have been able to survive there. He noted the biblical account of the location of the Ark. And the Ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Uratu, the biblical Ararat, was a large region in eastern Turkey. This location was certainly feasible. But the factor that captured his interest the most was the length given in the Life magazine story, 500 feet. Most people were looking for a 437-foot Noah's Ark based on the Hebrew cubit. But Ron again went to the Bible to learn more. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses was the author of the Genesis account of the flood. He would have known the cubit of the Egyptians. The Hebrew cubit didn't come into existence until there was a Hebrew nation after Moses' death. The Encyclopedia Britannica stated, the Egyptian cubit is generally recognized as having been the most ubiquitous or universal standard of linear measurement in the very ancient world. The royal cubit equals 20.62 inches. This would mean Noah's Ark was much longer than 437 feet. 17 years after the Life magazine article, Ron finally made the journey to Turkey. When he saw the boat-shaped object, he saw that it looked just like it did in 1960, and he knew he would need permission to excavate in order to learn anything about what was beneath the surface. So he returned home and enlisted a number of friends to help him pray for an earthquake to reveal more. In late 1978, he learned of an earthquake in eastern Turkey and returned in August of 1979. When he arrived, he was overwhelmed by what he saw. The earthquake had dropped the soil around the object and a large crack extended the entire length. He could see what looked to him like the remains of decayed rib timbers along the now exposed sides. Also, he was able to measure the depth of the debris and measure the length. It was 515 feet, or exactly 300 royal Egyptian cubits. He was now convinced. He carefully combed the surface, looking for evidence that it was a shipwreck. He saw what he believed were petrified structures of an ancient ship whose deck had collapsed. He saw what looked like deck joists and deck support timbers. Of particular interest was the fact that the ship appeared to be impaled on a large outcropping of limestone. He concluded that this indicated that the ship had slid into the rock from another location. Before he made his first trip to Turkey, he had done an experiment in a nearby lake, building mountain configurations out of rocks and floating a boat model by them to see the reaction of the boat. He noted that a crescent shape caused the water to pull the boat into the crescent where the boat remained and gently floated. The present location did not fit with the results of that experiment, 
So, Ron decided to examine the area above the boat shape. The site was in a moving mud flow, so he followed the mud flow up the mountainside. About a mile and a half up, he found a crescent shape of mountains. He saw that the mud flow began up here. When he arrived near the top of the ridge, he found an ancient stele, like an ancient billboard, which depicted the boat shape, the familiar mountain ridge, several birds, and eight faces within the boat shape. Clearly, this was a reference to the ship of Noah and its eight survivors. He noticed a taller mountain peak on the stele that was no longer visible from that location. He concluded that it was a small volcano that had erupted long after Noah's Ark had landed and that it had carried the ship down the mountainside about a mile where it was impaled on the limestone outcropping, then covered in lava. The lava then encased the ship like a time capsule. The volcano then collapsed after expending its lava and was no longer visible. He then theorized that as the lava began to decay, water seeped in and allowed the remains to be petrified or fossilized by the process called mineral replacement. Molecule by molecule would be washed away from the remains and replaced by molecules from the objects and substances above it. As he examined the area within the crescent shape, he found a large section, 120 by 40 feet, approximately, of what appeared to be fossilized wood in the ground. He believed this to be the bottom of the ship, the original landing site. His conclusion was that when the flood water subsided, the ark sank into the muddy earth. This held the ship upright. Then God sent the wind to dry the face of the earth the portion of the ship that sank into the mud was now firmly embedded in the ground. Many years later, when the lava carried the ship down the mountain, the main body of the ship was ripped loose. Only this section remained in their original location. Around this area that Ron believed to be embedded petrified wood, he found specimens of rock which looked very unique to him. He took several samples, along with several specimens from the boat shape below. Back home, he sent them for analysis. The results showed organic carbon, which indicated that the samples were consistent with decayed and fossilized wood. They also contained metals, such as iron and aluminum. The analysis of the strange-looking rock Ron had found about a mile and a half above the site by the bottom of the ship was clearly the most exciting. His initial analysis had shown it to be metals and not rock. In 1984, Ron met and became friends with Colonel Jim Irwin, the former astronaut. Colonel Irwin was searching for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, but he was very gracious and was interested in seeing the boat-shaped site. Ron had brought a metal detector to the site to see if there was a pattern of metal readings. 
In the presence of Colonel Irwin and others on his team, Ron employed the detectors. He found distinct metal lines down the entire length of the object, while no metal readings were obtained just outside of it. Ron asked Colonel Irwin, who had impressive scientific community connections, if he could have the strange specimen tested. Colonel Irwin sent the specimen to Los Alamos National Labs, where geophysicist John Baumgartner performed the analysis. The results of that analysis captured Dr. Baumgartner's interest. The specimen contained manganese, also titanium and aluminum, among others, and these were not in the form found in nature. Due to the sophistication of the metals, he questioned whether a missile had crashed on the mountainside and Ron had found the remains. The exciting evidences of the metal lines and the analysis of the specimens brought two new researchers into the work. Dr. Baumgartner and David Fasselt, a marine salvage expert who knew all about ships and their construction. They both joined the team. Oh, look at that. Oh, well, wait a minute. Wait, let me get a close-up of that. Kind of, um... You want my hand in there for... Yeah, just to point at those little okay. flakes of iron that are coming out, like right there. There and there. Huh. That's a strong reading. Hmm. Well... I'd say that, that, uh... Those frames right there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> keep walking. Do you want Do you want a measuring tape to measure these things, how far apart they are? Baumgartner and Ron scanned the entire site with three different types of metal detectors. Placing rocks at each metal reading, they then attached tapes to show the lines. This exciting evidence also attracted the interest of ABC's 2020. The boat-shaped site was first found and photographed by a Turkish army captain back in 1959. It was quickly explored and dismissed as a freak of nature. But Wyatt, an amateur archaeologist, rekindled interest in it a few years ago. He brought in Dave Fasold, a marine salvage expert, to assess it. The Doomsday Mountain team brought in some high technology to explore the oldest legend of man. They began scanning their site with a molecular frequency generator. It's a device used by surgeons to pinpoint cancer tumors, and it's been used by Fasold to locate underwater treasure. This time 
time, the molecular frequency generator began to pick up a unique pattern of iron lines beneath the earth. Okay, bring that one up. They began placing ribbons along those lines. The finished shape outlined by the ribbons was that of a huge ship, the approximate length and width of Noah's Ark, as described in the Bible. The fascinating field of ribbons soon attracted higher academic interest. That looks like iron. Okay. Dr. John Baumgartner, a physicist with Los Alamos Laboratories, sent samples back to the lab for analysis and confirmed that the metal they were tracing with the ribbons was indeed iron. With the width and the length known, the only remaining question was depth. By locating the depth of the hull, they could determine if the boat-shaped object had the cargo capacity described in the biblical ark. To resolve this final issue, Wyatt and Fassel brought geologist Tom Finner to Turkey with his company's heavy-duty subsurface radar equipment. Gear like this located the black box cockpit recorder on the floor of the frozen Potomac River after the Air Florida crash. It was here, several miles short of the boat-shaped site, that a waiting game began for Finner and the others. The party needed a final go-ahead from the Turkish government to complete their probe of Doomsday Mountain. The restrictions of martial law left the American explorers isolated from the outside world. Not even a telephone. Anyway, we're going to hang in like smell on a skunk till there's nothing left get this done. Hang in like the smell on a skunk. The Turkish government stopped the, the exploration. What now? Since we were there, Barbara, things have cooled down, and they've sent their own team of scientists in to take a look at this site. It's a very fascinating location. While Turkish scientists and archaeologists did their own research, Ron and his associates continued their work. The next step was subsurface interface radar. There's the longitudinal bulkhead. You ought to see them pop it out, Ron. Yeah, there they are. There's yeah. another one. There's the key line right there. Yeah. Oh, Ron, the lines are there! <laughs> The lines are there. Okay, we're going to walk over. Yeah. Take a look. Leave it, leave it running so everybody knows that we're not cheating here, right? <laughs> you got it, Cole. Okay. Now, this is the west, the west bulkhead. Okay, can you look through there and... All right. This is the west bulkhead. All right. That was over there. And he walked easterly. Here we start getting a longitudinal bulkhead. Here, 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 here. Here, here. Okay. You see there how it shows up? Right. The initial scans were very impressive, showing internal structure consistent with bulkheads and rooms. But to be sure they were interpreting the data correctly, Ron took the scan printouts to Geophysical Survey Systems, the developer and manufacturer of the radar. This data is not it does not represent natural geology. It's, it's a man-made structure. These reflections are occurring very per periodic, too periodic to be random nat natural type interface. There was no longer any doubt that this was the remains of something man-made. In late 1986, the Turks announced their decision. The ceremony was set for June 1987. During that ceremony, the governor asked Ron to demonstrate the radar on site for the journalists and military officials. When Ron showed them a readout that he said looked like an intact timber, 
the governor then instructed a soldier to dig right there. What emerged was this petrified section of fossilized hand-wrought timber. Sectioning showed it to be laminated wood, five layers of timber glued together with pitch, clearly visible oozing from the end. This fossilized specimen shows that rivets were used in its construction. Their analysis showed that they contained iron, titanium, and aluminum, among other things, very sophisticated alloys that would be resistant to water. Specimens falling out from the lower end of the ship identified a slag by an expert in metallurgy, syndicated to Ron that Noah filled the hull with slag material from his metal production of the fittings used to build the ark. More complete radar scans revealed a ship, although damaged and collapsed in places, a very intelligent modern design with a ramp system at the door which led to each level. In 1990, Ron performed what he called a mini-excavation, where he took shovels and bent the blades into a giant razor. He and his associates then shaved off a very thin layer from one section, smoothing it to show the color difference between the structure members and the matrix. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In the 1950s, NATO conducted an aerial survey of eastern Turkey, which included the region known anciently as Uratu, or Ararat. When the aerial photographs were examined, the specialists noticed one very unique formation on a mountainside about 12 miles south of the volcanic Mount Ararat. This strange formation was in the distinct shape of a ship. Its length was estimated at approximately 500 feet, and out of the hundreds of stereo photos taken of this region, this object was unique. Nothing like it was found anywhere else, including on Mount Ararat. 
when Dr. Arthur Brandenberger, world authority on photogrammetry at Ohio State University, saw the photo. He stated that in his opinion it had to be man-made, and it was a ship. In 1960, an expedition from the United States, including Dr. Brandenberger, went to the site. After blowing several holes in the formation with dynamite, they came away with the official conclusion that there was nothing of any archaeological interest there. However, Dr. Brandenberger continued to state that he still believed the object needed further examination. In September of 1960, an article appeared in Life magazine telling about the expedition. 27-year-old Ron Wyatt read that article like thousands of others. But unlike others, Ron promised himself that one day he would see the strange object for himself. Ron, the father of two and soon to be three, knew it would be many years before he could ever go to Turkey. But throughout the following years, he never gave up his desire to visit the strange boat-shaped object. Ron was an avid student of ancient history, archaeology, and all of the sciences, and had never considered that the Ark could have survived until the present. But in 1960, he saw in Life magazine an object that he believed was the only likely candidate for that distinction. He had read all the eyewitness accounts of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, and he had discovered that they were all contradictory. All were in different locations, and all were of varying sizes and shapes. He studied the history of Mount Ararat and was convinced that nothing made of wood could have survived its past eruptions or glacial flows. There were many stories about uh, what people claimed to have seen uh, by way of remains of Noah's Ark. These ranged uh, from uh, a boat that had been broken in half and part up on the mountain, part down at the base of the mountain. Uh, but most of them implied that the boat had been caught in the ice and preserved and was nearly intact. I didn't feel that that was a uh, likelihood. Uh, and as there was no photographs or no real indication that these people had seen anything, uh, I believed that all that would be left was approximately what appeared in the picture in Life magazine in 1960. The boat-shaped object had many things in its favor. First of all, it was in the mountains, plural, of Ararat, as stated in the biblical account. Second, it was shaped like a seagoing vessel. Studying ship construction, Ron had learned that a barge-shaped vessel simply cannot survive on open, stormy seas. In third, it was approximately 500 feet long, not the commonly accepted 450 feet. Ron had concluded that the author of the Genesis account of the flood, Moses, would not have stated the ark's length in Hebrew cubits. Moses was born and educated in Egypt. The Hebrew cubit came into use many years after Moses' death. The only cubit he would have known would have been the royal Egyptian cubit of 20.6 inches. This would have meant that the ark was 515 feet long, not 450. In 1975, Ron read the book, The Ark File, by Rennie Norbergen, a member of the 1960 expedition. 
For the first time, he now knew the names of the expedition members, and he contacted all but one of them to get directions to the strange object. However, the team had left from the small town of Dobizid on horseback, led by the military, and they could offer him no directions. In 1977, he and his two teenage sons, Danny and Ronnie, flew to Turkey. It took several days of very uncomfortable travel to reach Dobiasit. Ron had no idea where to begin looking for the boat-shaped object. After all, it had now been 17 years since the 1960 expedition. Would anyone even remember it? And even if they did, Ron didn't speak the language and had no way to ask. So they checked into the Erzurum Hotel and got some sleep. The next day, they hired a taxi to take them to the road they had entered town on and simply began to walk. Soon, they came upon a group of local villagers who looked quite intimidating. But convinced that Ron and the boys were tourists, one of the villagers appointed himself their guide. Ron saw a very large rock which had crosses carved on it. About ten feet in height, this stone had a hole on one end. Ron remembered seeing similar objects in an archaeology book that were anchor stones used on ancient ships in the Mediterranean Sea, but this one was many, many times larger. When their guide saw Ron's excitement at seeing this, he showed them several other similar stones in and around his village. Most of them had eight crosses carved on them in the Byzantine and Crusader styles. For the first time, Ron realized the possibility that the Ark had used such anchors, not for anchoring the ship, but for stabilizing it and holding the nose into the oncoming waves. The crosses on these stones were of the style of ancient Christian Byzantines and Crusaders who were well known for carving crosses on objects they associated with biblical events and places. Did these early Christians connect these stones with the eight survivors of the flood? The next day Ron and the boys again began to walk the region. This time they came upon an ancient stone house partially collapsed. Its great age could be seen by the fact that the ground level around it had been raised several feet by eroding soil from the surrounding hills. Extending out in all directions around the house was a system of stone fences also almost buried with only their tops extending above the ground. But most interesting were the two stones sitting beside the house, one standing and one lying flat. These also had eight crosses carved on their faces, but the crosses were carved on top of some earlier pictographs. There was what appeared to be an arch across the top, which Ron believes was a rainbow. Below this were eight figures walking away from an ocean wave shape, above which sat a boat shape. On the stone lying on the ground, the second figure from the right was a woman. Her head was bowed and her eyes were closed. On the standing stone, both the first figure, which was a man, and the second figure, a woman, both had their eyes closed and their heads bowed. Ron drew an incredible conclusion. 
He believed these were possibly the tombstones marking Noah and his wife's graves. The wife, he concluded, had died first, and that is why only she was represented with her eyes closed on her stone. When Noah died, his eyes were shown as closed as well as were his wife's. Nearby was a natural amphitheater between two hills with a large stone that appeared to be an altar. Could this possibly be Noah's post-flood home with corrals for breeding various animals and an altar directly behind his house? These were exciting discoveries, but they still hadn't found the boat-shaped object. Finally, the last afternoon they were there, Ron left the boys reading while he made one last search. This time he had the taxi drive in a different direction, south of where they had earlier been. When the taxi had gone as far as it could, he began to walk through the mountains. After a while, he saw the boat-shaped formation directly below him. And seeing it this close, he was convinced more than ever that it needed thorough scientific investigation. He needed to learn what lay beneath the surface of the soil covering the strange object. That evening, he and the boys paid their hotel bill and arranged for a taxi to take them back to Air's room in the morning. While packing, they heard the clamor of men coming up the steps, banging on the walls and shouting. When Ron looked down the stairs and saw them, he recognized some as men they had encountered over the last three days, and he realized they planned to rob them. The region is so isolated that he knew they were in trouble if they didn't escape quickly. Barricading the door and tying sheets together, they climbed out their window onto a roof where they re-entered the hotel through its kitchen and escaped. But in the commotion, they lost most of their film and luggage. The results of that trip was that I was pretty well convinced that this boat-shaped formation was the remains of Noah's Ark and that there were several other archaeological remains out there that uh, showed this to be the area where the Ark had come to rest. And so I was quite happy uh, with that result and planned to go back at a later date and uh, do more work on the formation itself. When we returned to America, uh, I became aware that there was one other individual that had uh, not agreed with the findings of the Vanderman group. Uh, their findings, of course, are conclusion was that this was just an odd-shaped geological formation. It turns out that a Dr. Bill Shea that uh, worked with uh, a university in Michigan uh, had come to believe that this uh, boat-shaped formation uh, at the least represented the place where the boat had landed and perhaps had decayed away but left its imprint uh, in the mountainside out there. Dr. Shea, too, believed that the site needed to be thoroughly investigated. And when comparing the boat-shaped object to the current thought that the Ark had to have landed on Mount Ararat, he wrote, To conclude, one might put these two sites in perspective 
by reflecting upon what would have happened had this formation been found on Ari Da, or Mount Ararat. I may be wrong, but I suspect that news of it probably would have been heralded far and wide as the discovery of the site where the ark had rested. What a difference a mountain makes! Dr. Shea had also written that he too believed that it was likely that the royal Egyptian cubit was used in giving the measurements of the ark. Assuming a mosaic authorship for these measurements probably would indicate that they were given in terms of the Egyptian cubit of 20.6 inches rather than the shorter Mesopotamian cubit. After Ron and Dr. Shea communicated and Ron shared his information from the August 1977 trip with him, Dr. Shea applied to Turkey for permission to excavate. The reply was negative. As far as Ron was concerned, there was nothing else he could do at that point, so he waited for Providence to hopefully provide opportunity. Believing it was important to have some idea of where the ark would have landed, in 1975 Ron had performed an experiment. The uh, story of the flood indicates that the ark was a free-floating object uh, on an earth covered with water and that it came to rest in some mountains. So with this in mind, I built a small model of uh, the boat six to one ratio as is mentioned about the ark. And then I constructed miniature mountains in a shallow flowing stream and I would release the model boat upstream from these uh, little mountains and by changing the shape and size uh, of these mountains I was able to determine what configuration of mountain the boat would most likely come to rest in and uh, so I found that a crescent-shaped mountain uh, oriented to the northeast or southeast would be the most likely place that a free-floating object would come to land. And with this in mind, uh, the site in eastern Turkey uh, fit that uh, configuration, that geological configuration, so that was a plus. Without permission to excavate, Ron felt there was nothing he could do. Then, in December of 1978, he heard about a small earthquake in eastern Turkey. On the chance that it might have damaged the boat-shaped object, he arranged to return in September of 1979. When he arrived, he was overwhelmed by what he saw. The earth surrounding the boat-shaped object had fallen away, revealing its sides, which clearly showed evenly spaced indentations along the western side. He believed these were holes, which resulted from the fractured, petrified ribs which had partially fallen away when the support of the surrounding earth was no longer present. On the eastern side, he saw what looked like portions of rib timbers which were fragmented, but still in place, only discernible due to their shape and color. The quake had caused a crack along the length of the object, and Ron was able to measure the depth of the structure and to take samples for analysis. If these specimens were decayed in petrified wood, 
they would contain a much higher carbon content than the surrounding area. The analysis done by Galbraith Labs did indeed show this to be the case. The specimens from the site showed 4.95% carbon, which indicated that it was once living matter, such as decayed or petrified wood. In addition, the analysis from the site showed a high iron content, much higher than the surrounding area. A wooden ship the size of the ark would surely have had metal fittings used to hold the timbers together. The biblical account tells us that metallurgy was a known science well before the time of Noah. And the analyses gave indication that something within the object contained a high level of iron. Ron measured the site and found it to be 512 feet long, but he also found a three-foot section at the lower end which appeared to be broken away from the main section. This was extremely important because it was the length Ron and Dr. Shea were looking for. It was 300 royal Egyptian cubits in length, 515 feet. While I was there, I photographed uh, this area carefully and uh, walked on the formation for the first time. And uh, the earthquake had actually cracked the formation uh, along its entire length. Uh, and I was able to take some good clean sample material from this crack. I was also able to measure the depth of the deposit at uh, different points along the length. Anyway, I took samples along the length of the crack in the formation and from the uh, outer part of the formation and I took samples from the countryside away from the influence of the formation so that we could have these analyzed and compare the results. The 1960 team had blown several holes in the sides of the boat-shaped object but saw nothing that they recognized as petrified wood. Realistically speaking, it could not be expected that a 4,300-year-old ship could survive until the present. The region of Ararat experiences extremely cold winters with large amounts of snow, springtime rains, and hot summers. Exposed wood would have simply rotted away over the years. This strange boat-shaped object was now in a mud flow. It had a large section of limestone bedrock extending through its midsection, which indicated that it possibly had slid to its present location, impaling itself on this rock. Ron concluded that at some time, lava had flowed down the mountainside from the south, carrying the ship with it. When the ship struck the large outcropping of limestone, it was impaled and held fast. The weight of the lava piling on top of the ship collapsed the decks and the entire ship was soon encapsulated within the hardening lava which protected it. Water from snow and rain began to accumulate underneath the hardened lava. In time, as the lava began to deteriorate, water began to flow within the decaying lava which caused the ship to petrify. 
But if the ship had been covered in lava, why wasn't it burned up? Well, lava doesn't always burn everything it comes in contact with, as we read in this quote from the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of the Earth. It might be supposed that the high temperatures of the lava would give off an enormous amount of heat. This is not so, however, and it is quite usual for a flow to pass through a forest or town without causing a fire. One flow from Paracutan even piled up against oaks and cottonwoods without destroying them. How can we explain this anomaly of high lava temperatures and absence of fire and flames? To begin with, lava consists of a vitreous mass which is a poor conductor of heat. It also cools quickly at the surface, becoming covered with a crust which in some measure prevents further heat radiation from inside the mass. Thus, a lava flow has, as it were, a constantly forming, insulating case around its molten interior so that the front of the flow is preceded by a protecting crust. If the ark had been completely covered in lava, it would have been sealed, cut off from the oxygen and water which would have normally caused it to decay away. In time, the lava would begin to slowly deteriorate, allowing water to begin to flow through it and over the preserved structures of the ark. As mineralized water flowed over the wooden timbers, wood molecules began to wash away, leaving microscopic holes. As the water washed these molecules away, other molecules began to lodge in the empty holes. These were molecules of substances which the water had picked up prior to reaching the structure being petrified. The ship's structures would be literally turned to stone as its molecules were replaced one at a time by molecules from the minerals in the region above. The 1960 expedition had found no petrified wood, or at least none they recognized. They had not taken into account the fact that due to the weather extremes in the region, any petrified structure near the surface would have suffered from the effect of frost action or wedging. If this mound contained the petrified structure of Noah's Ark, the water present in the mud flow from rains and snows would have seeped into the tiny cracks and pores of the petrified and fossilized structure. This water near the surface would then freeze, expanding almost 9%, causing the petrified structures to fracture. The Encyclopedia Britannica states, When moisture seeps into the pores of a rock and freezes, it may shatter the rock into tiny fragments of silt or sand size. As this process is repeated year after year, any structure near the surface which would have been exposed to the freezing temperatures would be expected to be fragmented and in time reduced to fragments some the size of a grain of sand. It was unlikely that any petrified structure near the surface would have remained intact. At the most, these structures would have suffered enough weathering to give them the jagged appearance of old rocks. 
if any intact structure remained, it would most likely be found within the soil deep enough to be protected from the elements. Ron had also read about the discovery of the Sutton Hoe funeral ship burial, which was discovered in 1939. While its treasures were what attracted the public interest, it was the actual ship that had attracted Ron's interest. The wood had completely rotted away. However, as the excavators carefully unearthed the treasures, they discovered corroded iron clinch nails still in place, as this account describes. As they continued clearing from one end, Mr. Brown was careful to see that the nails, which now began to appear in a regular pattern, remained in position. As the earth was removed bit by bit, the forward part of the ship emerged in rough outline until, moving toward the center, they cleared to the eleventh frame or rib and reached what they believed was a burial chamber. The outline of the huge ship was perfect. Every vestige of wood had rotted, but what remained was a perfect impression of the ship's hull, which had been in the sand for centuries. The earth was stained from the wood, and the rusted iron clinch nails that had once held the ship together remained exactly in place. This was very exciting to Ron because it demonstrated that even when the wooden structure was completely rotted away, its presence could be detected by the coloration and stains left behind. But again, without permission to excavate, Ron was still at a standstill. All investigation had to be non-destructive. But the high percentages of metal in the site gave him an idea. In 1983, Ron contacted White's Electronics of Sweet Home, Oregon, and presenting the project to them, asked if they would donate metal detectors to be used in the research. His theory was that perhaps the location of the metal fittings which connected the timbers could be detected. I had contacted White Electronics uh, in Oregon and made them aware of what I wanted to do and asked them if they had some uh, metal detectors that would penetrate a little deeper into the soil than uh, the usual ones. And so they were kind enough to uh, send me their two best metal detectors. It was also in 1983 that Ron read about Colonel Jim Irwin, the astronaut, who was searching Mount Ararat for the Ark. Ron drove to Colorado Springs and met with him, explaining about the boat-shaped object. Colonel Irwin expressed interest in seeing the site, and in August of 1984, the two men flew together to Turkey. Before going to Dobizit, Colonel Irwin met with some friends in Ankara and took Ron along. At their home, Ron was introduced to several people who would soon change the course of his research. Orhan Basar and Mine Unler would become Ron's official liaisons with the Turkish government, assisting him in obtaining the necessary permits to continue his research. Arriving in Dobizit, Colonel Irwin met with his group, and Ron took several of them to the site. 
Orhan Bazar obtained official permission for Ron to do metal detector scans, and they scanned the entire object with the ferromagnetic metal detectors. Ron found 13 lines of consistent metal readings lengthwise along the object. Colonel Irwin, in a 1986 conversation with Ron, tells about the results of those scans. We decided that since there was some metal in those analyses that we got back from Galbraith, that it might be worthwhile to um, look at the boat with a metal detector. And so, you know, remember you expressed a desire to be there when we checked this out, and you were there. Yeah, we got some real positive readings, didn't we? Yeah. As we went up and down the, the long direction of right. the formation. And, uh, At that moment in time, we were getting metal readings, right. but other than that they appeared at fairly uniform uh, intervals. Right. This, the spacing made it uh, appear like, uh, very much like it was a uh, man-made object. Yeah, no doubt about that. When they returned to the hotel and word spread, several other ark hunters wanted to see the site. One group was headed by Marv Steffens, and when the metal detector scans were repeated, his group immediately got very excited. Ron and Orhan later spent an entire day examining the area above the boat-shaped object and visiting local villages, asking if anyone knew any stories about an ancient ship being in the region. They discovered that no one knew anything about a ship being located in the vicinity. They did learn that the village where Ron had found the anchor stones was known as the Place of the Eight although the villagers admitted that they had no idea where the name came from. They also learned that the mountain the boat-shaped object was on was locally called a term which loosely translated to Doomsday Mountain, although again, no one knew where these names came from. There is good reason why there is no record of any local traditions about the ark or a ship in the area. The original inhabitants of this region were attacked and displaced by the present inhabitants in the early years of this century. The invaders took over the lands, their homes, and even their flocks and herds. But all knowledge of any local traditions the original inhabitants may have had was lost. When Ron and Orhan scoured the countryside above the boat-shaped object, they discovered something which Ron believed was extremely important. They found a very strange section of earth approximately 120 feet long and 40 feet wide, which appeared to be outlined by a thick rim of petrified wood. Scattered over and around this section were strange-looking objects which looked like rocks, but which were very heavy and felt like metal. Ron took specimens of this strange substance. He had also taken similar specimens from the lower broken section of the site, and his theory was that it was ballast from the hull of the ark. He had earlier concluded that the ship had slid to its present location in a lava or mud flow, and he now believed that this was a portion of the hull that had remained embedded in the earth. When the ark was carried down the mountainside, it was ripped away from this portion of the hull, causing the ballast material to be left lying scattered all around. 
In this same area, they also found a recently constructed stone structure which had pieces of an ancient broken stele incorporated in it. Being careful not to draw the attention of the locals to these broken pieces of stone, they photographed the pictures inscribed on these stones. Pieced together, these broken pieces depicted a boat-shaped object very similar to the 1950s aerial photograph. And within this boat shape were eight faces. The very unique mountain ridge above the boat-shaped object was also depicted with ravens in flight, and next to the ridge was depicted a volcanic-looking mountain, a mountain that had since subsided. When Ron stood on the top of the ridge and looked south where this mountain was represented as being, he saw that there was a mountain in that location, but that it was no longer visible from the viewpoint of the artist of the stele. This was, Ron was sure, the volcano that had erupted many, many years ago and covered the boat with lava. Since the broken pieces of the stele were found near the location of the section he believed was the bottom of the hull embedded in the earth, he believed this stele had once marked the original location of the ark. Orhan had also arranged permission for Ron to take more substantial specimens from the boat-shaped object as well as from the surrounding terrain. On August 25, 1984, Ron left Turkey with his specimens and headed towards Athens to connect with his overseas flight. When he arrived in Athens and purchased a newspaper, he read that Marv Steffens had called a news conference in Ankara about the time Ron had left and producing a bag of his own specimens, he announced that Noah's Ark had been found. He was immediately detained, accused of taking valuable artifacts. And with this, he proceeded to tell the authorities that Ron, too, had left taking specimens and was already out of the country. It had only been a little over four months since Ron and his two sons had been released from a three-month prison term in Saudi Arabia after being falsely accused of being Israeli spies, and he wasn't very happy at this turn of events. If the Turks believed he had taken valuable artifacts from their country, his days of working on Noah's Ark were finished. When he arrived in New York, he checked into the Carlton Hotel near the airport and called the Turkish United Nations mission, explaining what had happened. Within a few hours, three Turkish representatives arrived at his hotel, examined his specimens, and told him that he was free to keep them. They had checked with authorities in Ankara and discovered that he really did have permission to take the specimens. He was exonerated of the charges, but only after the whole event had made the newspapers and Ted Koppel had called him a thief on Nightline. However, what looked like a disaster turned out to be the event that first caused the Turks to take an official interest in the site. The United Nations Observer and International Report featured a full-page story on Ron and the evidence at the site. What Wyatt found measures almost identically to the text offered in the sixth chapter of Genesis in the Old Testament. It was also found in the area where the Bible says the ark finally came to rest. 
What we actually have found is physical evidence that this is a boat. Uh, whether or not it's Noah's Ark is up to the people that review the material. Uh, that's up to them to decide on that. My personal feeling is that it is Noah's Ark. Wyatt admits his skeptics are severe, and he has a long road to travel before his theories can be totally tested. The rock, wood, and metal samples are currently being analyzed with reports due on the specimens by mid-September. If it is the Ark, what has been proven? To the people that believe in God, this will be a confirmation of their faith. Wyatt firmly believes ultimately his find will be proven to be that of Noah's Ark. Even then, he says, there'll be some who still won't believe it. As far as the timing of this find, he has an explanation. But I think everything is on a time schedule, and I believe that when the time is right, these things will be brought out. Back at home, Ron sent one specimen that he had taken from the section he believed was the embedded hull above the ark to Colonel Irwin who then sent it to Los Alamos National Labs for careful analysis. Ron then went to Galbraith Labs with his new batch of specimens. These analyses were even more encouraging than the 1979 ones, as these revealed extremely high metal contents, not only of iron, but also of aluminum. Although aluminum constitutes about 8% of the Earth's crust in weight, it never occurs in the metallic form in nature. It occurs as alumina. Yet, these analyses revealed that the specimens contained both alumina and aluminum. Ron believed that the petrified structures would not only have been petrified with minerals from the soil above the site, but also with the molecules of the metal fittings of the ship which contained aluminum as well as iron. Ron arranged to return to the site a few months later in October of 1984. The Turkish government had sent several of their own scientists to examine the object and Ron arranged to loan them one of the White's metal detectors. He wanted to see if they could duplicate the pattern of metal readings at even intervals. They did. Colonel Irwin was dedicated to searching for the Ark on Mount Ararat, but he continued to offer Ron any assistance he could. When he received a call from a man who was interested in searching for the Ark, but who expressed the belief that it couldn't possibly have landed on Mount Ararat, he referred this man to Ron. Early in 1985, Dave Fassel called Ron. Dave was in the marine salvage business and was familiar with several new technologies which were used in non-destructive investigations such as radar. When Ron told him about the boat-shaped object, which he now without reservation referred to as the Ark, Dave was very interested. Ron sent him photographs and filled him in on all the data from his research, especially about the 13 lines of metal readings which extended from one end of the ship to the other. On March 20, 1985, Ron and Dave arrived in Turkey. Meeting them there was Samaran al-Materi of Saudi Arabia, who had recently visited Ron in the United States. Samaran wanted Ron to show him the mountain in Saudi Arabia that Ron believed was Mount Sinai. 
In December of 1983, Ron and his sons entered Saudi without a visa and went to Jabal El Laws, but were then arrested at the Jordanian border after being reported as spies. The event had caused quite a stir in Saudi, and Samran had learned of Ron's claim after his release. Now he wanted Ron to come back to Saudi with him to show him the site. But perhaps to ensure that Ron's claims were valid, he wanted to see Noah's Ark first. When Ron and Dave arrived, Samran was ill, and they had to delay their departure to eastern Turkey until he felt better. During this time, Minay Unler arranged for them to meet with Dr. Ekrem Arkugal, Turkey's leading archaeologist, world-renowned for his excavations of the Hittite Empire in Turkey. Familiar with both Ron's research and the reports of the Turkish scientists from the fall of 1984, Dr. Arkugal made the following statement. Uh, may I congratulate you for that great success, really. Thank you, sir. Uh, I believe it is uh, an ancient remains of, a, of an old ship. This, since the earthquake pushed it up, mm -hmm. the wood you see is eroding out, and it mm -hmm. must be covered quickly mm -hmm. also, because we're losing much. It must be preserved. It must be, it must be preserved. These the, are the remains. Oh, which yeah. are, at any rate, remains of uh, a ship. Yes. Things had changed a great deal in the past eight months. Ron now had liaisons who made his arrangements with the proper officials and acted as translators. The government had officially taken an interest in the site, and now their leading archaeologist stated unequivocally that the object was a ship. The three men then went to the site, and immediately Dave Fassel, who certainly knew about ships, was overwhelmed by what he saw. He had brought two different types of metal detectors, a pulse induction type and the new and controversial molecular frequency generator, which unlike the conventional metal detectors, was supposed to be able to discriminate types of metals as well as receive readings from great distances. They again were able to detect the regular pattern of metal readings both along the surface and along the sides of the ship. Ron then took them to see the anchor stones in the village as well as the old stone house and the tombstones. But when they arrived at the house, they found it reduced to rubble and the tombstones gone. Where the tombstones had once rested was now a hole partially refilled. Ron was devastated. From that point on, he was very careful not to draw attention to anything of interest for fear of it being destroyed or removed. Samran, by now very excited, then arranged for Ron, as well as David, to go to Saudi Arabia. But before they left, Mene Unler arranged a meeting for Ron with all of the Turkish ministries involved in about two weeks, and he would formally present the results of his research and his plans for future investigations. On April 9th, they returned to Turkey from Saudi, and Ron stayed and met with the officials who listened to his evidence, and they told him that they would work with him in any way that they could. He told them about the subsurface interface radar, which would reveal any internal structure, but which was non-destructive. They assured him a permit as soon as he could arrange it. 
but there was a problem. The radar and its operator were very expensive. However, at this point, it had to be the next step. Soon after arriving back in the States, Ron received another call, this time from the scientist at Los Alamos who had done the analysis on the specimen Colonel Irwin had sent there on Ron's behalf. John Baumgartner, a geophysicist, questioned Ron about the region from which the specimen came. Ron then asked him to come see for himself an invitation which he accepted. Ron returned to Turkey for another meeting a month later in May, and then on June 2, 1985, John Baumgartner accompanied Ron and Dave Fassel to Turkey. Using all three types of metal detectors, they scanned the site, placing rocks and markers at every place they got a reading. They then connected these rocks with ribbons, revealing the pattern of a massive ship. Dave found a specimen which John examined and found to be consistent with hand-wrought iron. My name is John Baumgartner from Los Alamos National Laboratory. I've had the privilege of being on this expedition with Ron Wyatt and David Fasol this last week to the site east of Dobizet in eastern Turkey, uh, investigating the uh, site of a large boat-shaped object. Okay, would you uh, show us briefly this uh, specimen that uh, Mr. Fossil uh, owns and that we wish we owned? Okay. It's uh, striking in the fact of its angular character. Have uh, some seem to have some preferred planes in the object on the outside as well as the inside. This inner portion that appears to be a silica replacement of something. Uh, this would represent, if the interpretation is correct, a portion of an angle bracket. And we, we see a corner of it here. It's uh, interesting that it uh, apparently still displays the, the uh, grain structure of the iron. Now, and does it, this seem to be cast iron or wrought iron? I would say it's it's uh, has the character of wrought iron, and uh, uh, it appears that this is almost pure iron oxide here, this outer portion. All right, from uh, your <coughs> own use of metal detecting equipment out on the site, John, would you say that this is an isolated piece of uh, iron? No, we found uh, just an incredible amount of iron in this in this formation. Uh, this is one of, uh, this was sampled from one of the many points along the stores. Well, we were on the starboard side where we collected this, this uh, sample. Uh, they, they appear to be regularly spaced along the, uh, along the boat. But Ron knew the difficulty they would have in convincing anyone else that this object contained the fossilized remains of a massive ship. The general public simply didn't understand about petrification and frost wedging which fractured petrified wood. Even more importantly, Ron was discovering that many trained geologists didn't recognize pre-flood petrified wood because it doesn't contain the growth rings of post-flood wood. 
none of the specimens he had taken from the site had growth rings, and because they were fractured from the weathering, they were only fragments of timbers unrecognizable as wood to most people. There were no growth rings because the biblical account states that there was no rain prior to the flood, but that a mist watered the face of the earth. Growth rings result when the growth of the tree halts due to cessation of its water supply during the cooler season or during a drought. Scientists who reject the biblical account even agree that carboniferous plants contain no growth rings, but this would be a stumbling block to many. On the western side, the rib timbers had been exposed to weathering and had fragmented and were rapidly falling away, leaving only the empty spaces where they had once been. The only way to distinguish the rib timbers on the side that still retained portions of them was from the color difference in the fragmented ribs from the soil surrounding them. The exposed ribs were, for the most part, now reduced to very small fragments, but they still remained in place. By this time, Ron was convinced that this was indeed Noah's Ark, and this ship, as such, is the oldest man-made structure on Earth, and it is in the exact condition that was to be expected, but it wasn't what the world wanted to see. They were looking for a barge-shaped ship, still intact or perhaps broken in half, but still wooden, not petrified. And they were looking for it on Mount Ararat, even though this volcano had experienced several eruptions, the most recent in the mid-1800s, which was very similar to the Mount St. Helens eruption, which blew out an entire portion of the mountain. Uh, the uh, upshoot of the uh, interest of the group at Los Alamos is that Dr. Baumgartner uh, made an appointment with myself and uh, we uh, and David Fassold uh, to meet some people out in Dallas that were considering funding part of the documentation on this formation. And uh, David uh, suggested that a subsurface interface radar scan of the site would be helpful and useful since we were denied permissions to excavate and uh, of course this uh, I was very happy with that prospect and the results of our meeting in Dallas was that the project to do a radar scan uh, of the site was funded. Everyone's hopes were riding on the radar scans. Only the internal structure could have survived the weathering which was fragmenting everything on and near the surface. Dave also arranged for ABC's 2020 to cover the event. On August 1st, 1985, Ron arrived with the permit and was joined by John and his group which included other scientists from Los Alamos. They went directly to the site and repeated the metal detector scans, again laying out the pattern of ribbons. The Los Alamos scientists also measured the site with sophisticated surveying methods and confirmed that it was 515 feet and 7 inches. 
Dave would arrive a little later with the radar and its operator, Tom Finner of GSSI. 2020 was also on their way. But with all the attention the outsiders were receiving, the local guerrillas took this opportunity to make trouble. Commandos were assigned to protect the men at the site, and they positioned themselves in the crevasses around the ship. But suddenly shots rang out, and the commandos quickly rose up and fired upon the terrorists, sending them fleeing, but not before killing several. Martial law was declared, and by the time Dave, the radar, and 2020 arrived, the site was off limits. It was a terrible disappointment, and everyone's frustration was intense. But the coverage by 2020 documented the metal detector scans and other evidences, making the public aware for the first time of what was happening on Doomsday Mountain. Do you believe Noah's Ark actually existed? Could the legend that sounds like a fairy tale really become proven fact? Well, the search has been going on since biblical times, and in a moment you're going to meet some people who are positive they have found the Ark. Now, we know such claims have been made before, but a few months ago, these people came to 2020 with some new and intriguing scientific findings. The boat-shaped site was first found and photographed by a Turkish army captain back in 1959. It was quickly explored and dismissed as a freak of nature. But why have an amateur archaeologist rekindled interest in it a few years ago? He brought in Dave Fassel, a marine salvage expert, to assess it. Fassel felt he knew a shipwreck when he saw one. He became obsessed with it. For over a year, I haven't dreamed about anything else, from the time I put my head on the pillow to the time I wake up. And that's all I think about all day long. And I'm sure that's all Ron thinks about. <laughs> The Doomsday Mountain team brought in some high technology to explore the oldest legend of man. They began scanning their site with a molecular frequency generator. It's a device used by surgeons to pinpoint cancer tumors, and it's been used by Fassel to locate underwater treasure. This time, the molecular frequency generator began to pick up a unique pattern of iron lines beneath the earth. Okay, bring that one up. They began placing ribbons along those lines. The finished shape outlined by the ribbons was that of a huge ship, the approximate length and width of Noah's Ark, as described in the Bible. The fascinating field of ribbons soon attracted higher academic interest. That looks like iron. Dr. John Baumgartner, a physicist with Los Alamos Laboratories, sent samples back to the lab for analysis and confirmed that the metal they were tracing with the ribbons was indeed iron. With the width and the length known, the only remaining question was depth. By locating the depth of the hull, they could determine if the boat-shaped object had the cargo capacity described in the biblical ark. To resolve this final issue, Wyatt and Fassel brought geologist Tom Finner to Turkey with his company's heavy-duty subsurface radar equipment. Gear like this located the black box cockpit recorder on the floor of the frozen Potomac River after the Air Florida crash. Suppose this rock were a foot or two feet underground. Would it give you a reading as to where that was? Could you locate it? Yes, we could. Is it possible that there will be a moment at which you will say, this is a man-made object? Uh, the symmetry of the feature suggests it's about 
Um, I hope to prove that the underground structure is in fact that of a boat. Just before we arrived to do this story, several groups of climbers, including ARC hunters from the Probe Ministries of Texas, were attacked high on Mount Ararat by a band of Kurdish separatists. They sent in several battalions of elite commandos who swept up Mount Ararat, chasing the rebellious Kurds, with predictable results. Some were killed, some arrested, but others escaped southward toward, you guessed it, the boat-shaped site on Doomsday Mountain. It became a hornet's nest of anti-guerrilla activity. The restrictions of martial law left the American explorers isolated from the outside world. Not even a telephone. Well, I'll be back next year. Be sure. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to hang in like smell on a skunk till nothing left. Hang in like the smell on a skunk. The Turkish government stopped the exploration. What now? Since we were there, Barbara, things have cooled down, and they've sent their own team of scientists in to take a look at this site. It's a very fascinating location. John Baumgartner did a live interview with CBN during the event, and this too brought the site to public notice. John explained that the site was completely unique. Not only had they performed metal detector scans on the site, but they had also examined other sites which, at first glance, appeared similar, but which showed absolutely no metal readings. Do you suspect that the formation itself could be different than any other formation on the mountain? Uh, we feel the, the formation is quite unique. Uh, there are several uh, formations that have a superficially similar uh, shape, but uh, and we've investigated several of them, and uh, they, as, as we investigate them, we find they are uh, do not have the special characteristics we find in in the in the uh, site we've been focusing on. But still, the radar had not taken place. Back at home, Ron approached a Tennessee businessman he had worked for many years earlier, whom he knew had funded worthy projects in the past, with the request that he assist with the radar equipment. This gentleman, who asked to remain anonymous, told Ron he would purchase a radar system. His business would retain ownership, but he told Ron he could use it any time he wished. He purchased the SIR-3, a system similar to the SIR-8 that had been brought to Turkey in August. It was shipped directly to Ron's home in Madison, Tennessee, and upon its arrival, he immediately took it to the customs office and registered it, placing the customs declarations in both the radar case and the bag which contained the cables and small antenna. It was too late to do a scan in 1985, but he wanted to be ready. He wrote his name and address on the card and placed it in the glassine window on the bag. He was ready. Then he took it to the owner's office as they wanted to use it on one of their construction projects. He returned again to Turkey in October of 85 and again in May of 86 before returning in June of 86 with Dave. So here was the radar and here were Ron and Dave. Worked for many years earlier whom he knew had funded worthy projects in the past with the request that he assist with the radar equipment. 
This gentleman, who asked to remain anonymous, told Ron he would purchase a radar system. His business would retain ownership, but he told Ron he could use it any time he wished. He purchased the SIR-3, a system similar to the SIR-8 that had been brought to Turkey in August. It was shipped directly to Ron's home in Madison, Tennessee, and upon its arrival, he immediately took it to the customs office and registered it, placing the customs declarations in both the radar case and the bag which contained the cables and small antenna. It was too late to do a scan in 1985, but he wanted to be ready. He wrote his name and address on the card and placed it in the glassine window on the bag. He was ready. Then he took it to the owner's office as they wanted to use it on one of their construction projects. He returned again to Turkey in October of 85 and again in May of 86 before returning in June of 86 with Dave. So here was the radar and here were Ron and Dave. And Dave was already a certified radar operator having completed the course at GSSI. They immediately took it to the site and did 10 passes. Now we're going across the front end of the boat and David set those markers in so he can see if there's a relationship between the metal lines of his frequency generator and the parallel uniformly separated timbers that are showing up on the SIR. Boom, 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 farther distant oh, from yeah. it, Dave. Well, can, uh, okay, that's got it right there. Point, yeah, right? yeah, this point. All right, let me show you what we're doing. Uh, this is the upper end of the, of the boat. Uh, I've just located the, uh, the very end of it again. Uh -huh. The green stakes represent bulkhead number two. All right. All right. Uh, that's at 63 feet. Yeah. That, those stakes are actually at 66 feet. All right. Okay, now, I, I, but I'm picking up the, where, the, where the, uh, the longitudinal bulkheads double up at the bulkheads. Right. That's why I've got so many stakes that are green. Right. But then when I go in between bulkhead two and three, uh, I haven't got as many bulkheads. Right. You see what I mean? Because they haven't doubled as up. As many longitudinals. Yeah, right. I haven't doubled up. Okay. These are coming out real good. Yep. And uh, if you want to bring the camera over, I want to show you how it's, uh, it should come out on the paper. All right? Just... Okay, we're going to walk over. Yeah. Take a look. Leave it, leave it running so everybody knows that we're not cheating here, right? <laughs> you got it. Cool. Okay. Now, this is the west, the west bulkhead. Okay, can you look through there and... All right. This is the west bulkhead. All right. That was over there. And he walked easterly. Here we start getting the longitudinal bulkheads. Here, 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 here. Okay. Here. You see there how it shows up? Right. 
So, I mean, that stake is not a figment of my imagination, nor with the frequency generator. Right. This, uh, this uh, subsurface radar shows that there's, there is something underneath there. Ron then called John Baumgartner and Dr. Bill Shea to come and participate in the event they had all waited for. Ron got all the permits needed, and soon they were all on their way. John's group arrived and had brought a hot air balloon to use to film the site from the air. Dr. Shea was on his way, but before he arrived, disaster struck again. John's group had inflated the balloon in the hotel parking lot, and it caught on fire, causing such a commotion that their permits were rescinded. When Dr. Shea arrived, the site was off limits. He didn't get to see the object of his study for so many years, but Ron did take him to the village and to several of the anchor stones. It looks like a one, two, three, four, five. And five and one, two, three, four. This one's got fourteen. Undoubtedly, uh, well, here's the central cross that they're going by, of course. And it's difficult to tell which were the originals and which are the extra ones that have been added later. But here you have five, a little one here, uh, three more here, and here. And then this one matches with this one. There's more here. So we have five down here, five up here, and four over here. So the extras were undoubtedly added uh, at a later time. And you can see there's also been some damage in terms of uh, uh, target practice. Right. Now this gives you a nice idea of the height of some of these stones. And it also gives you a nice idea of the location of the rock. This rock also has the crosses carved in it. They're a little harder to see because of the ridges in the rock and the natural ridges in the rock. But if you look carefully, uh, there are a number of places. Here is a good example. <coughs> here is another example. Rather. And uh, here is the bottom of the bigger one. The bigger cross comes across here. Uh, so probably if you could examine it more carefully after changing lighting you would see all of them and uh, undoubtedly this stone probably was also standing up and uh, you'll notice that the distribution of the crosses seems to be lower in the rock on the face of the rock lower down to the, uh, the bottom part of where it would have stood upright. The June 1986 expedition was the last time Dave, John and Ron would work together but it certainly wasn't the end by any means. Returning home, Ron took the video of the radar scan, along with the printouts, to GSSI, the radar manufacturer, and he showed it to both Tom Finner, who had come to Turkey in August of 85, and to Joe Rosetta, vice president of the firm. They confirmed the results. The scans showed man-made structure within the formation. Indeed, there is something beneath that rock, besides rock. A radar device developed by Geophysical Survey Systems in Hudson was used on the mountain. The device called SIR is used by energy exploration companies to analyze what's below the Earth's surface. According to SIR, something man-made is under Mount Aridov. This data is not, it does not represent natural geology. It's, it's a man-made structure. These 
reflections are occurring very per periodic, too periodic to be random nat natural type interfaces. Okay, we are at uh, Geophysical Survey Systems Incorporated in Hudson, New Hampshire. And in front of you here you see uh, some of the SIRs, equipment, subsurface interface radar equipment. And these are other varieties of the same system that we used out in eastern Turkey. At that time, Ron completed his training on the radar equipment and received his certificate. On November 8th, he returned to the site and did complete scans of the entire ship as well as the surrounding area, reporting the results to officials in Ankara. In December, the decision was officially made. The evidence was complete, and Turkish scientists agreed with Ron. It was the remains of Noah's Ark, officially. The evidence had been scientifically studied. Years earlier, the photogrammetry expert, Dr. Arthur Brandenburger, said the boat-shaped object was man-made based on his years of experience in studying stereo photos. Chemical analysis of specimens taken from the site showed the presence of metals in quantities and types that do not occur in nature. They contained organic carbon, which proved that they were once living matter. Natural rocks do not contain organic carbon. The metal detector scans showed a very distinct, organized pattern of metal beneath the surface consistent with the shape of a ship. These scans were done numerous times using three separate types of metal detectors, all of which confirmed the same results. Laser and other sophisticated methods of measuring performed by scientists at Los Alamos confirmed the length measurement. They showed the object to be exactly 300 royal Egyptian cubits. The subsurface interface radar scans revealed visual evidence of organized structure encapsulated within the boat shape structures that were positively identified by the radar specialists as being man-made. Turkish authorities, many of them of the Muslim faith, who accept the flood account of the Bible, saw no other conclusion possible. It was a ship. It was in the mountains of Ararat. It was 300 royal Egyptian cubits in length. 
it was the remains of Noah's Ark. In February of 1987, Ron was asked to appear on Turkish radio and television and discuss the research. And then in 1984, we came out and uh, we found that there was some metal in the boat, which was kind of a surprise. But in Moses' record that he wrote in the Torah, which the Quran, of course, says the Torah is reliable. And uh, in there, uh, the story tells us that they had metal. Now, Tublacane, who was the great-great-grandson of Adam, our fourth generation, used iron and bronze, which meant they knew about alloys, alloy process. So the flood happened in the 10th generation. So uh, it appeared that they had metal, and it's logical that uh, no one would use it. Yes. And so once we found that there was metal in there, then we got a special metal detector and took this over the ship. Mm -hmm. And by this method, we could find where there was metal in the ship. And it turns out that on all of the rib timbers, there's metal brackets. And on all the timbers that run lengthwise of the boat, there's metal, uh, metal brackets. So we were able to document where the timbers were just by reading the location of the metal from the surface without digging in. He then met with the governor of Ari, the district which contained the ark, and arrangements were made for the official dedication ceremony to be held in June 1987. He returned in both April and May of that year again scanning the site with radar. By adjusting the frequency of the signal and scanning the same location over and over, Ron was able to obtain data that would produce a three-dimensional image of the structure beneath the surface, allowing him to construct a model of the ship. On June 20th, 1987, Ron was guest of honor at the ceremony held on a hill just above the Ark. In attendance were officials from Ankara and the regional governmental agencies, high-ranking military officials, scientists from Ataturk University who had independently investigated the site, and numerous journalists. Plans were also revealed for a visitor center to be built overlooking the Ark, and it was dedicated as Noah's Ark National Park.
The governor then asked Ron to bring the radar to the ARC site and perform a scan for the officials and journalists. After doing several passes, Ron explained the printout to those in attendance and pointed out what he said he thought looked like an intact timber just two feet below the surface. The governor ordered a soldier to dig, and what emerged was this section of petrified timber. The event was shown on Turkish television throughout the country. The governor gave the timber to Ron to bring to the United States to be tested. Everything that the Turkish scientists had recovered to that point had been kept under wraps. The governor wanted this to be made known, and placing it in the radar case, it arrived in the States in perfect condition. Back home, Ron took the precious timber to Galbraith Labs. It was an incredible specimen, perfectly intact, and displaying evidence that it was hand-hewn and laminated. Three separate layers of wood could be seen, but more exciting was the fact that the laminating glue substance could be seen to have oozed out on one end and was perfectly preserved in the petrified specimen. At Galbraith, they carefully chiseled off a sample. If this was truly petrified wood, it would contain organic carbon. If it were just a rock, it wouldn't. First, a test would be run for total carbon, both organic and inorganic. Then, a test would be run for inorganic carbon. By subtracting the amount of inorganic carbon from total carbon, the amount of organic carbon would be determined. We're in the process of weighing the sample now before the analysis for the total carbon of this sample. The inorganic carbon will be included in this determination, all the carbon that's present. As we run the inorganic carbon, we'll be able to tell the difference if there's any organic present in the material. total carbon. 0.7019% of it was organic. And not only did it contain organic carbon, it contained 13% iron, iron from the metal fittings. When this timber was petrified, the water washing away its molecules immediately washed in iron molecules from the metal objects it had already passed over 
which filled the empty holes. Ron again arrived in Turkey with the SIR-3 radar on July 23, 1987. He again continued with his scans of the entire arc, setting the frequencies to reflect the structure at varying depths. He now had all the data he needed. The width of the arc was 138 feet at its widest point, which was wider than 50 royal Egyptian cubits, which equals 87 and a half feet. But the decks could be seen to be collapsed, and when they fell, this broke the deck joist, which held the ribs in position. This caused the ribs to fall outward, giving the initial appearance that the ship was wider than the biblical measurement. But the internal structure, showing bulkheads, were the proper width. The radar showed a tremendous amount of damage to the ark, but some chambers could still be distinguished. Ron assumed symmetry when he built his model. If a section was in poor shape on the left side, but was in good shape on the right, he constructed both sides identically. On the southwest side near the front, the radar showed a very large door which opened to a ramp system which led to the different levels of the ship. The top and middle decks appeared to be completely open along their midsections, which possibly would have allowed light from above to penetrate through the entire ship. The top deck could not be reconstructed with much accuracy due simply to the fact that it was collapsed almost completely. All that could be determined was where each level began and ended. The four keelsons, two of which extended along each side of the ship, continued to extend out beyond the rear of the ship, a feature Ron has never seen before. When Dave had used his molecular frequency generator on the Ark in 1985, he had noted a large section of the hull which showed a void. When Ron and Orhan Bazer found the large section above the Ark, Ron believed this was the bottom portion of the hull that was embedded in the Earth and which remained in the Earth when the Ark was swept down the mountain. Now the radar showed this same void. Since 1977, Ron had seen numerous anchor stones. In 1977, he saw one above the present location of the Ark. He later found one approximately one-half mile below the Ark, while the largest number of them were located about 15 miles away in the village known as the Place of the Eight. Any determination of exactly how they were used on the ship would be conjecture but it appears that they were dropped or cut loose when the Ark entered the area. In an attempt to discredit these stones, alternate theories have been proposed as to their origin. One of these theories proposes that they are Armenian cult stones that originally had cult symbols carved on them and that the holes at the top were for candles or represented the pagan eye of the dragon. This theory proposes that when the Armenians converted to Christianity, they erased the original inscriptions and replaced them with crosses.
but in 1989, Ron found two more anchor stones. Only these were buried in the earth and were only now beginning to be exposed due to soil erosion. And they contained no crosses or inscriptions of any kind. If these were truly anchor stones, it makes sense that some would have been buried in the mud after the flood, and the Byzantines and Crusaders couldn't carve their crosses on them. But if the Armenians had made them, where were their cult inscriptions? Ron, what's the significance of the placement of the crosses in these stones? All right, uh, Tom, this is an iconographic representation here of a man, the head of the household, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters or daughters-in-law. And as you can see here, the eight crosses, the ones to his left are the lady folks in the family. The ones to his right are the men folks in the family. Do these fit the, uh, the story of Noah? Uh, they do. Another interesting object sets alongside the road leading to the village of Eight. It is a very large section of what appears to be petrified tree bark, and it too has eight crosses carved on it. Ron has theorized that it may have been part of the covering of the ark that Noah threw off after the dove and olive branch scenario. Bark is well known for its watertight properties and again, someone many years ago associated this object with eight. In 1988, work began on the visitor center as well as construction on the highway which led to the turnoff up the mountainside to the ark. But the world was not overwhelmed by the discovery of Noah's ark. In fact, it received very little media attention in the States and when it did, the traditional ark hunters came out in force to deny its reality. Various theories had been developed since 1984 as to what the boat-shaped object really was. Some of these theories were that it was a syncline or a geological formation described as a clay upswelling in a lava flow, which John Baumgartner discussed in 1985. It had been proposed that this was a natural formation resulting from a mud flow around some kind of volcanic plug. Uh, first of all, the, the rock formation here in the center of the ship is not volcanic, uh, and it much, has much smaller extent than the, than the ship itself, and it appears to, from these uh, lines that you've been drawing that the ship has impaled itself upon it. Uh, there's no evidence for any kind of plug beneath this thing. There's uh, erosion all the way around it, and, and there's no, no sign of, of such a uh, uh, firm formation that could, uh, could produce this, this oval-shaped object. So it's not a clay upswelling in a lava flow? No, no. Another theory? was that it was a copy of the ark built by Constantine, another theory which failed simply because the metals found in the ark were not in use at that time. Aluminum has only been alloyed since 1948 and titanium since 1936. Then there is the theory that it is an ancient fortress. However, it doesn't take a great deal of intelligence to recognize that no one in their right mind would have built a fortress in a mountain valley surrounded by hills. 
their enemies would only have to stand upon the surrounding hills and shoot down upon them like sitting ducks. The strange metal objects Ron and Orhan found above the Ark site, which Colonel Irwin sent to Los Alamos, were very important. They proved to contain an extremely high content of manganese dioxide, titanium, and aluminum. This material was identical to some of the specimens Ron had found falling out from the lower end of the hull, and he therefore concluded that this material was used as ballast. Ballast is any heavy material placed and secured in the lower hull of a ship to give it stability. All ships have ballast, and Noah's Ark would have been no exception. But because of the exotic combination of metals contained in these masses, the evidence indicated that perhaps as the ship was constructed, the slag or waste product of the metal production of the ship's fittings was placed in the hull as ballast. John Baumgartner had contacted Ron after examining the specimens Colonel Irwin had sent to Los Alamos, and it was this specimen that first attracted his interest. In 1979, uh, I found uh, that the group in 1960 had blown away a portion of the hull, and uh, at this point, some of the ballast in the boat uh, was exposed. Uh, and at the surface, I broke off a small portion of this and brought it back for analysis. And the analysis showed that it was 84% manganese. Now, this is a rather sophisticated space age metal. And uh, these analyses get to be rather expensive very quickly. And when you get an unexpected analysis, uh, the uh, thing to do is to have other labs do a check on the same material to see if they get the same results. We couldn't afford that, but Jim Irwin, when I showed him the analysis, expressed an interest in getting it checked, so I gave him a part of this ballast, which he uh, sent to Los Alamos National Laboratories, and uh, he said that he would wanted to do that, and that was fine by me. They got the identical results, so I received a phone call from uh, Dr. John Baumgartner uh, quizzing me about the site, the location uh, of the object in the area, and uh, I could tell that he was trying to uh, figure out something from my description of the area, so I invited him to come along and he agreed to do so and brought two other individuals from Los Alamos with him. Uh, and I found out later that uh, they had concluded because of the nature of the analysis that uh, part of a satellite or uh, a missile had come in out there. And uh, so that uh, uh, did help our investigative procedure considerably. One critic took it upon himself to declare that these specimens were manganese nodules, which are found by the billions of tons on the Pacific Ocean floor.
However, Ron's specimens weren't taken from the Pacific Ocean floor, nor did they compare in composition or size with these manganese nodules. Manganese nodules average about 35% manganese dioxide, and they also include copper and nickel. The ARC specimens contained no nickel or copper, but they do contain titanium and aluminum. In fact, the ARC specimens contain exactly what would be expected in waste product of high-tech metal alloys. In 1990, Ron, Marv and Renetta Wilson of Dallas, Texas, Tom Allen of Switzerland, and myself decided to spend some time examining the house Ron believed was Noah's. The ancient stone fences could still be easily seen extending out in all directions from the house, only their tops extending above the earth. But another interesting feature was the large rock behind the house that looked like an altar. So we all hiked up to it and found not only the large rock, but a complex of rocks that clearly had been arranged by humans for some purpose. We're standing up here next to the uh, altar stone. We're to the right, looking down into Kazan. You can see the lay of the fencing as we pan. Digging out here, too, right? <clears throat> Everywhere. These stones up here have obviously been placed in this manner. They're quite large. In fact, they're extremely large. As you can tell, the deal of R standing there. easily put, say, the sacrificial animals in here, Ron? Probably. Now, we're in the little area. There was a doorway. in another pinned-in area. And as we pan over here, is the very large stone that we suspect would be the altar. When we climbed upon the hill around the large rock, we discovered it to have excellent acoustics, like a large amphitheater. Okay, I'm standing up on the stone now. It was quite a big step. Of course, there's a lot of moss on it. And we look out straight dead ahead at Noah's house. 
and then just beyond there, Kazan. Right over here. The pen, possibly, where the animal was brought to be prepared. A little place. Here you go. Where its blood was shed and drained. And Ron says that he can hear me quite well just talking in a normal voice here. Renetta and I measured the altar, as we now refer to it, and found it to be an extremely weathered 12-foot cube with a step in the back which was about three feet above the ground. Standing upon this step and looking over the altar, we had a magnificent view of the entire region. The house and its system of fences was directly below. The rocks on the side were arranged in a manner that was consistent with being pens for medium-sized animals. There were also two large rocks which seemed to have been shaped. Okay, okay this is designed to kill and bleed bullocks, or large cattle is the term used in the Bible. They bring them up this ramp here, and they chipped this out, and also chipped out here so the animal could be led, and somebody behind swatting it appropriately would get right up here. And then they could turn it around, and then bind its feet and legs, of course, and lay it down with the head down this way, and cut its throat, and of course the blood would all run out. And Noah was specifically instructed that they should not eat the blood of the animal. And, of course, there were other parts, too. All the rocks had suffered a tremendous amount of weathering, but it was quite evident that many had been arranged by humans. However, it would have taken a large number of very strong men to have moved some of these boulders. One was leaning against the cliff face in a manner which formed a roof, and it was so large that I could walk under it without stooping. I don't think there's any chance that uh, anybody around here moved this rock here. <laughs> That rock is gigantic. You better need some help. Ron believes this was Noah's altar, where his family met during the times of their sacrifices. We then walked down to the house and spent a long time examining the area. We found no evidence that the area had been inhabited for a great number of years. Okay, we're looking at Noah's house here. Trying to be very um, discreet, as one of the villagers is. Come up here next to us. We're looking at the fencing now. You can see how it went.
across the hill, up high also, and even all along the top. Now we're surveying the fencing from the other way. The sun's pretty bright. I'm trying to shade it. Here we can see the fencing that ran up beside the house. This gives us a real good view of the fencing right behind it. In 1990, Ron conceived an idea which he thought might help demonstrate the condition of the ship. The western side had suffered a tremendous amount of deterioration and weathering. The exposed ribs were virtually gone, leaving only the indentations in the soil surrounding them. But the eastern side contained a section which appeared to still contain some of the petrified although severely fragmented rib timbers still in place. In October of 1990, Ron and Richard Reeves went to the ark and took shovels whose blades they bent and sharpened like giant razors. Scraping just a few inches of matrix from the side, they hoped that the petrified ribs would be able to be seen. These ribs were fragmented due to weathering since they were so near the surface. But due to their slant, the soil around them had held them in place. Very carefully, assisted by Delavar, who had accompanied Ron since March of 1985 as his taxi driver, began to scrape. They realized they had to be extremely careful to remove only a very few inches. Okay, what we plan to do here is to shave the rib timber part of this uh, section of the hull and of course the texture between the rib timbers and the material that has covered the boat are different in color and uh, of course in density and that sort of thing and so we uh, are going to be able to show the dimensions of the timbers here by doing it this way. Okay, again we're focusing in on the timbers in the side of the boat. And in particular I would like to make note of this large colorful one right here. Now that's a 
large uh, timber that was a part of the Keelson system that protected the outside of the boat from boulders and logs and other debris that it would be forced against in the storm. And then Okay, Richard is okay. pointing to a stone right in the middle of the big Kilson configuration that comes around from the end. And if you'll notice the color difference there, that's where the Kilson comes around and goes up over the end of the boat. Also, if you'll notice at the top, there's a difference in the color up there. And we'll shave this off here in a moment and let you see what we're talking about. Okay, now to uh, help you visualize the Keelson, external Keelson that is on the model of the boat, we've strung this rope along here. Now, if we shave this off, it'll probably uh, speed up the... <laughs> erosion process but that rope is right along the bottom of the external keelson and if you'll notice there's about a three foot width of darker material right there just above the rope until you get to this area and then it widens out and uh, so the keelson was a little narrower up at the front of the boat than it was along the side of the boat. Okay, go ahead. Now you'll observe that that structural material, because it's petrified wood, is more porous and the water soaks into it and then in the winter when it freezes, this, uh, the water expands when it becomes ice and fractures that material. So the petrified wood is much more vulnerable to the freezing and thawing that takes place in the winter time than the matrix are the cover material and so that's why they are a different color a different texture and also a different uh, in hardness alrighty that keelson comes right down through there and again we'll sweep along okay that's got it Richard sweep right down along through here this was a perfect example of how extremely fragile the remains were once exposed to the elements 
any intact structures would be reduced to tiny fragments in probably one season. If it was ever to be excavated, it would have to be first covered and protected, and then each exposed structure member would have to be encased in some type of acrylic polymer to seal it and protect it, a process that would involve a tremendous amount of time and effort. Yet, Ron still dreamed of the day it could be excavated. In 1991, Ron took a tour group to the site, and as he approached, he noticed a large object and picked it up. When he turned it over in his hand, he saw that it displayed the perfect shape of a rivet with a washer around it, and that it appeared to be fossilized. Our last trip out there this past June, we found this very impressive rivet. And if you'll notice here, the plate itself is just a little more than a quarter of an inch in thickness. It's approximately three and a half inches in diameter, the plate itself, and then the shaft of the rivet is a roughly an inch to an inch and a quarter in diameter. And if you'll notice here, it was struck while it was hot and flared out the end of the shaft so that it would not slide back through the hole in this washer. And this uh, shows that their abilities to use metal uh, was quite advanced. In 1984, he had photographed areas along the sides of the ark, which showed colorations suggestive of metal oxides, all in circles. He hadn't disturbed these for fear of destroying them, but now he believed this specimen showed an actual example of one of the metal fittings. It was analyzed by three separate laboratories. Since it was fossilized, a great deal of its original material would have been replaced by minerals, and the analysis showed it contained about 20% silicon, which was expected. However, it also contained very high percentages of aluminum, titanium, and iron, the same metals which were found in the slag material used as ballast, except for one major exception. The ballast material contained over 84% manganese, yet the rivet specimen only contained less than 1%. This was even more evidence. In the production of aluminum and steel, very large quantities of manganese are required, but very little remains in the alloy. Steel generally contains less than 1%. Yet, over 95% of the manganese produced today is used in the production of alloys, with the majority of it ending up in the waste product. And this is exactly what the evidence at Noah's Ark indicates. A few months later, in August of 1991, Ron, Richard Reeves, Marv Wilson, and Dr. Alan Roberts of Australia met with several authorities in Ankara to request a permit to excavate. Dr. Roberts had contacted Ron in 1990 and expressed a serious interest in the site. 
Ron had provided him with details of the research, which Dr. Roberts studied carefully. He visited the site alone in 1990, and like Dr. Shea, believed that an excavation was necessary. By this time, he had received a financial commitment from a British corporation to fund the excavation with Ron as head of the project. Ron explained the procedure he planned to use that would protect the exposed sections. After short deliberations, the men were told that they would receive the permit. But it was Thursday, and due to a long holiday, the offices would not again be opened until Monday, at which time they were to pick up the permit. With several days to kill, the four men decided to fly to Erzurum and visit the region southwest of the Ark. DeLavar got a minivan and they headed south. But as they neared Bengal, they were taken hostage by a group of guerrillas belonging to the PKK, an outlaw Kurdish party. For three weeks, they were taken through the steep mountains, sleeping on the bare ground during the day and traveling constantly during the night. When it was over, any hopes of excavating were shattered. The men had been through a terrible ordeal, as we see them here in the helicopter which took them from Bengal. It was also too late in the season to consider excavating. Each family had to deal with the emotional trauma which only time would heal. In time, we all recovered. But the region continued to remain unstable. In June of 1992, we took our second tour group to Turkey, and as we neared Dobiasit, a beautiful rainbow appeared across the sky. The bus pulled over and everyone got out to film and photograph it. Then, we again continued down the road, but within a few minutes we were flagged down by soldiers who wouldn't allow us to visit the Ark. And to this day, the region remains unstable and dangerous for tourists. The controversy continues to grow even though the evidence is overwhelming. Some who were once ardent supporters and associates now deny the evidence. So is it really the Ark? What we actually have found is physical evidence that this is a boat. Uh, whether or not it's Noah's Ark is up to the people that review the material. Uh, that's up to them to decide on that. My personal feeling is that it is Noah's Ark. Now we're going to get into Noah's Ark. So tell us all about Noah's Ark, where it was found, what it, all, all the fascinating details around it. Yes, this is the site, again, found by Ron Wyatt uh, in 1977. He went out there and God helped him locate it. He, he prayed and God, you know, did help him find it. It had been shown in Life magazine previously but in 1960, but it was kind of cast aside and not enough attention given to it. But uh, we're going to head out there and take a look at the real site. All right. Now, this is uh, the first thing I found fascinating, that we always assume it's on Mount Ararat. But it's not really Mount Ararat, and I'll, I'll let you give the detail on that. Yes. Uh, the Bible says the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, mountains, plural, and, and Ararat. Now, the name Ararat is the name of an ancient country called Urartu. Mm. And so the ark was to come to rest 
in the mountains of this ancient country of Urartu, and that is where it was found. It was found within the borders of the ancient country covering Turkey, Armenia, and you know, edge of Iran. So uh, it is in a correct location according to the Bible. Hmm. All right. So with our slides here, our first slide, we're starting out in Istanbul. Usually if you're coming from America, you'll fly into Istanbul. And one of the nice sites to go to is at the Hagia Sophia Mosque. It was originally a Christian church built in the 6th century and for a thousand years, mm. if you can imagine, for a thousand years it was the largest Christian church <laughs> until the Vatican was built. But uh, it's great to go inside of that. And then the next day you fly out to eastern Turkey and here we see the famed Mount Ararat in the distance. Uh, there's no clouds, usually it's enshrouded by clouds. And there's no ark there either? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> the, the arks there are just a lark. Oh. But uh, a lot of false stories. Uh, and as Ron White would say, that would muddy the water. When these false stories, one after another, over there on Mount Ararat, but that's one of the last places. Here's a close-up of the mountain mm. uh, peak there, very tall, you know, 17,000 feet high. But it's a post-flood volcanic mountain. Ah. You see all these lava flows coming out from it, and so it's one of the last places you would want to look for Noah's Ark. So now people assume, they go on the, the, the assumption that, well, it's a tall mountain, there was water all over, it was the first peak that appeared, and therefore that's where it is. Yes, but that's a wrong assumption. Um, also, it's hard for a boat to come to rest on a conical-shaped mountain. It's just you cannot move over and become you know, lodged in it. Not to mention the fact it was post. Flood. Yes, post-flood. You know, didn't exist right at the time of the flood. And a volcano that would have obliterated anything right. with lava flows right. and et cetera. So Genesis 8-4, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat, the mountains plural, and we said Ararat is a name of an ancient country called Urartu. And in Encyclopedia Britannica, the name Ararat, as it appears in the Bible, is a Hebrew equivalent of Urartu, ancient country of Southwest Asia mentioned in Syrian sources from the 13th century BC. So again, Urartu, I stayed at the Urartu Hotel, oh. my first visit out there. So they're still using the name out there in Eastern Turkey. So if you drive uh, from that town, Dagobaya is it, it's about a town of 50,000 people there near the Ark. But if you head about 10 miles away, you'll see a road sign, the only road through the area. There's a road sign that says Nuhan Gemishi, five kilometers, or Noah's Ark, or Noah's Big Boat, hmm. is up the road here. So this is a government-erected road sign acknowledging Noah's Ark is up the road. And so here's another angle of the sign, and the mountain in the background there is where the Ark is located. This is sedimentary, Cretaceous, water-laid rock. This is not, you know, volcanic mountain that came up afterwards. This is uh, rock from the time of the flood. And from that vantage point, using a zoom lens, I was able to capture on the left here, left center, you see the Ark formation that kind of flat area. Oh, down below there, yes. yes. Center left, okay. And to the right and near the center, you see the roof of the visitor center at Noah's Ark. In 1987, there's a visitor center mm. was dedicated and built commemorating Noah's Ark National Park. Hmm. So, you know, the government has acknowledged this as the place for Noah's Ark. 
Now, in the first century, Flavius Josephus stated, its remains are shown there by the inhabitants to this day. So it was not hidden away in some glacier over on Mount Ararat. It was in an accessible location like it is today. Hmm. It's about 6,300 feet up at the current location above sea level. So there are even inhabitants there even in Josephus' yeah. time. The locals there, yeah, there's a village right above the Ark here hmm. where they were probably hosting visitors, you know, coming to Noah's Ark. That may have been known as the Noah's Ark Village or something, you know, in ancient times. So here's another graphic of the Ark and a rainbow and, and the visitor center to the right behind the trees. But Ron's first visit out there in 1977, they had three days in the area. He had a two-week vacation from trip from his work to travel out there, five and a half days traveling, Whew. and five and a half days to get back. He had three days in the area, and what do you do if you don't, he didn't really know where it was located. The 1960 group couldn't tell him. All they could tell him was it was on a mountain range, and there was Mount Ararat in the distance. But that's still a needle in a haystack, and you've only got three days. So he and his sons prayed, and they hired a taxi. They prayed that God would show them a sign. And when they started driving down these roads, after a while, the taxi stalled. It stopped, and they got excited. They said, hey, this may be a sign from God. And they put a pile of stones next to the road there. Smart. <laughs> yeah. And then it's, the taxi started, and they got back in. So three times that day, the taxi stopped. And they put a pile of stones there. The next day, they went back to these piles of stones and walked directly out from them. And what they found was Noah's Ark, sea anchors that hung from the ark, and the remains of an ancient structure connected hmm. to Noah, perhaps his house or something. So they took this taxi, not knowing where they were going, and just said, drive us around. We're trying to find something. That's right. <laughs> so, um, but it worked. I mean, it, God, it did. God was in control. He was in control. You God know. was not the co-pilot that day. He was, yes. he was the pilot. He was the pilot. <laughs> so uh, today, this is the visitor center. When you come up to the visitor center, um, they have displays inside. Hmm where you can see the various pieces of information or artifacts or evidence that's been uncovered over the years at the ark site. No one has ever been issued a permit to excavate this. Now, that's not any of our fault. The government just has never approved an excavation permit. Hmm. So, so far, there's just been surface inspection done and a little bit of, well, there's a core drill done that we'll talk about later, but uh, no formal excavation. And then there's a visitor center uh, guest book where people are signing in from all different nations and people oh, are writing, yeah, writing, you know, exciting comments about. Um, so in Japan, we see Holland, Poland, people come all from all over yes, the world to this yes. place. Yeah, when you're down there, we spent, you know, days down there at the Ark site and you'll see tourists coming in in uh, vans, uh, tour groups. And one after another, you know, tour group coming there and looking down upon the ark. Hmm. Um, so people are coming there, you know, on a regular basis from from all over the world to see the ark site. And uh, when I went there the first time in 2000, 
I had a newspaper article from the Knoxville newspaper that had the image of the ark and had the visitor center curator there, Hassan Ozer. Hmm. He was in the photo. So I got a copy of that newspaper. I had it laminated. And I took it there to Hassan there in the visitor center and gave it to him. He was oh. very appreciative of it. But when you pull up to the visitor center, again, you see the boat-shaped formation in the background, and you see the Nuhan Gamishi sign, Noah's big boat or Noah's ark pointing right to it in this sign. And here is a view from the rear or from the stern, and you could see on the right some rib timbers, a little bit lighter color, you know, large boat shapes are built with ribs mm -hmm. uh, as a superstructure. So do we know it now, when you go up to those, as I assume you did, and are they I mean, it looks like dirt from here. It just looks like maybe it's dirt. It would, now, there it? has been some dirt to cover it. it. It was moved down to its current location in a mud and lava flow at some point. Mm. It was originally came to rest up higher on the mountain and was pulled down to the spot and was actually impaled on a rock outcropping mm. that uh, kept it from going further down the mountain. It would have been destroyed if it had been pulled further down. So there was some mud and lava on it originally. But uh, God has been bringing it up out of the ground or dropping the sides around it. Because when it was first found in 1960, the ground level around it was up to the edge of the boat. And so you could, you could just see the shape on right, the surface. Right, you could not see these nice rib timbers on the sides. Huh. So since then, God has been dropping the sides and has been revealing it more and more. So we can investigate it better hmm. by having the size exposed and so forth. So God, you know, has been watching over it. And this next photo, you see a more of a close-up of those rib timbers on the sides. They are vertical rib timbers in a regular order or sequence, and they're vertical. And of course, you have a flow of water coming down the mountain, and these are perpendicular to the flow of water coming down the mountain. The water coming down the mountain is not creating these. Mm. These are vertical. So this is not just something that's been carved out by, by nature. And again, an excavation has never been done, so we don't have uh, any evidence that this is, uh, well, or do we, that, that these are petrified wood on the sides there? Petrified wood has been found inside of it. It's been tested and so forth. So we know this is a wooden structure. Um, and then we'll get in a little bit later about the metal mm. that's been found inside of it, which is very exciting. Now here is the right or starboard side, and we're looking up toward the bow or the front of the arc in the distance. You can see the, the point or front bow of the arc. And on the right side here, we see the starboard side where the rib timbers are sticking up above the ground here. And this is a similar shot, but now we're standing just inside the ark. And again, in the mm. distance, you can see the bow where some folks are standing on the bow, and they're looking down the length of the ark. And here's a similar one where you can see the bow sticking up and this rock intrusion right in front of us where it impaled the ark uh, and it kept it from uh, sliding further mm -hmm. down the mountain. Now here's another view from the stern, from the back. You can see the symmetrical shape. The center of it is rounded and then the sides have fallen out. It's wider as stated in the Bible, but as we'll see shortly here, it's the exact length 
as stated in the Bible. Hmm. Now, there, what do you say to some folks who say, well, there are similar outcroppings like this around the world, and they show, see, here's other yes. ones. What, what's the difference there? Because this has man-made metal in it mm. that we'll talk about. That's the, which, the difference. Yes, yes. This has the petrified wood. It's the exact length as stated in the Bible. Um, and it has the man-made metal in it. Mm -hmm. So there are all these signs pointing to it, you know, as being the real site. This is another image of the curved deck in the center here, symmetrical with the sides splayed outwards. Here's another graphic of it showing the front, the rear, the rib timbers on the sides. It's the exact biblical length. And the center is filled in just from years and years of things flowing around it. Some of it is of mud, it. and some of it are the remains, you know, the actual mm. structure. So it's, just, it's a combination of things. And in the distance here, we can see the bow. Once again, it's a symmetrical point in the top of the photo here. So we are inside the boat, facing yes. the front. We're standing kind of in the center of the boat, looking up to the front. And the front was pointed for a reason. The ark needed to be pointed into the waves to pierce the waves. And uh, so, speaking of which, we have a model of it here on, on the desk. Yeah. And you know, some people might say, "Well, six thousand years ago, they didn't have boats like this. Noah's ark was just a big block, square." So, what, what do we say to well, that? Well, I think God helped in the design and probably told Noah you know, how to build it. It's in a six to one ratio like modern ocean liners today. Hmm. It's the length is six times the width. So, you know, very well designed. But what we have here in this model is, again, the shape of it. It's got the pointed front, the rounded rear. Um, it has these, off the front of it, these anchor stones that we'll see shortly. These created weight and resistance on the front when the ship was in the heavy waters and would allow the wind and the waves to push the rear into line with the oncoming waves. Mm. This would shift over, the rear would shift, and the front would be pointing into the waves that were coming in. And so the anchor stones were very important. We'll see that a little bit later where there were these large stones, some of which are 10 feet in height, had holes drilled through them, and ropes through the holes, and then they were attached to the front of the ark. So we see the pointed bow. It's there for a reason, so that the front would pierce the oncoming waves. And in our next photo here, in the distance, you see a large round hole, and this is where the 1960 group, they put some dynamite in there and blew out the side of the ark. That wasn't a very gent gentle excavation. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't exactly a core sample. Yes, no. it was uh, you know, instant, <laughs> instant uh, excavation. And uh, they believe they didn't see anything you know, nicely petrified and left after that. Here's a closer shot of the hole 
where they blew in the side of the ark. The ground level was up to that point back in 1960, mm. and since then it's dropped quite a bit. So have any other, well I guess no excavations have been approved, so nothing else has been dug out of that hole. Right, out of that hole, that's true, yes. But out of that hole I was able to climb up in there and take a picture out of it, and you can see this nice view of the valley mm. down below. Now the valley down below at the bottom there is called the Valley of Eight, or the Region of Eight. There were eight people that came off the ark. And so this area here has the name for the eight that came off the ark, the Valley of Eight or Region of Eight. And this, the, uh, the stones, as you've, you've shown me this before, but I'm sure we're going to get to it, they're also uh, indicated with markers of, of eight. Yes, we'll see eight crosses on these stones where early Christians came through and put crosses on the stones. And a lot of times eight were on the stones for the eight people that came mm. from the flood. They associated these stones as being with Noah's Ark and part of the flood story. So quite interesting. So Ron White's not the first to suspect such things. No, no. Nor was the group in 1960. Right. He's kind of late actually. <laughs> yeah. And again here is a side of the ark. We can see the rib timbers, the vertical rib timbers on the side of the ark which uh, again showing a man-made design, man-made construction that would give it a lot of strength, these large vertical ribs. And then here's a close-up of them. Now you can see again it's in, it's in poor condition, uh, but there's a rib on the left and a rib kind of in the center here and a rib on the right. But you see the, the vertical fissures or cracks going up and down showing where there's separation between the ribs and so forth. You can see how large they are compared to the, the hat there at the bottom of the yes, picture. Yes, right. And then again, here's another photo of the rib timbers. You see the vertical fissures. Now and the size of these rib timbers compared to, you know, we look at, okay, well, we had sim or uh, uh, prime, pr what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say some very simple tools uh, to build this thing. We would assume 6,000 years ago. Would that suggest that the people were a lot stronger somehow? They were stronger, yes, but then they also had metal tools. Now, National Geographic had a program a while back on Noah's Ark, and they showed them trying to make some boards for Noah's Ark, and these men in their video had wooden tools trying to make wooden boards for Noah's Ark. That's kind of hard, but we're told in Genesis 4 that Tubal Cain was an instructor of metal workers in brass and iron. Yeah, 422 I think. Is it? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. so before the flood, they were schooled, or knew full well how to work metal, how to create metal. So we should expect they had metal tools, we should expect metal to be on Noah's Ark, and it was. Hmm. And the people were larger than us? Yes. And we'll find out more about okay. that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now here's a port side. We can see the bow or front of the ark in the distance on the right side at the top of the photo. And then on the left, we see the port side where it's dropping down. It's in worse condition than the starboard side. It is more exposed, though, than the, uh, the starboard side, yes. is it not? Yeah. It is, yes. Now this is the metal rivet, as it's called, that was found in 1990 when Ron had a tour group out there. And this is what they found. 
you have a center rod with a washer around it. Oh, is that what that is? Yes, and then the center rod, when it was hot, it would be struck and it would clench or seize that round washer onto the rod. And this would be used where there are rib timbers coming together, where the timbers are joined together. They would then put the rods through there and then these washers, or as Mr. White called these uh, rivets, giant rivets. Mm holding it together so that's not unlike the uh, if you've ever been to Charleston South Carolina they have buildings with rods going right through them uh, to because of uh, concerns of earthquake okay and they're still there to this day they put, put, put there many years ago but it's the same thing it's a rod going through the building and there's plates on either side okay and, and the rod goes through the that's plates. just like Noah's Ark here yes mm -hmm. so uh, it's a three and a half inches in diameter and Mr. Wyatt had this tested at Galbraith Labs. Now, when I was there in 2000, I found two of these on the side of the ark. And I also had mine tested. My tests and Ron's tests both agreed. Wow. Now, I had two testings done, and Ron had one, and all three of the tests showed that there was the same percentage of aluminum metal and same percentage of titanium metal. Now this particular piece I gave back to the visitor center there in Turkey. This is the remains of a washer. It has a, a crescent shape to it, but it's part of a round washer. Now the right side of the artifact there is the part of the washer. Now here is the end of a metal rod that I saw on the side of the arc. At the round center object there in the center of the photo is the round end of a rod. And I had it tested and this is the third test that's been done as far as I know. Again, it's the same percentages, the same aluminum metal, the same titanium metal. Mm. And we have it in the display case here that uh, shows... You have a shot there of, of it on the screen of what we're seeing here on stage. Yes. Yeah. So it's got the aluminum metal and the titanium metal, 8% aluminum, 1.3% titanium metal. And uh, this Now the rest of it, obviously, this doesn't have to add up to 100%, so what, what do they right. determine is the rest of it? I don't know. I had to tell them what to test for. Oh, I see. Okay. And it was $60 for each metal that I mentioned, so I didn't want to oh. <laughs> give them a 1,000 <laughs> metals to search for. But uh, so this is the... Uh, the end of a metal rod there. Noah's Ark, again, agreeing with what Ron found, agreeing with the other crescent shape that mm -hmm. we found. And I found these on opposite sides of the ark, on the outside of the ark. So two different areas, plus wherever Ron found his. So three different areas, the same metal composition of the same man-made metal. So this is, you know, a man-made object. Now, presumably what is surrounding this is petrified wood. We'd have to assume at this point. There would be, yeah, when some of it may be some mud that's mixed in, ah. where the, the mud kind of covered the ark. But yes, there should be some sort of uh, petrified wood associated with this. Okay, well, we're going to come back to this in a minute. We're going to uh, show a nail from Noah's Ark next. Now, Kevin, uh, in the middle of our, our uh, presentation here, we, we broke, and now we're coming back. We are discussing metal, not only petrified wood, but metal found at the site of Noah's Ark, and that is because Tubal Cain was a metal worker. We had 
have evidence of that in Genesis 4. Now what are we seeing up on the screen here? So this is a cylindrical shape of a nail found in the remains there of Noah's Ark. And I sent it off to the lab, and it also came back with aluminum metal inside of it. Hmm. So again, we have the metal rivets, uh, the metal rod, you have the metal nail, all with aluminum inside. And so again, this is interesting information. Now, on the starboard side, in this graphic here, you see a nice vertical rib timber on the port side. Mm -hmm. Again, this is uh, it has a rather curved shape to it, sort of like the ribs we were speaking of earlier. So, really nice example of the ribs on the port side. But Ron White had a radar, subsurface interfar interface radar device that he could run across the side of the arc, and he noticed that there was a chamber at this particular spot. Hmm. And so he did a core drill. It's about six, six inches in diameter, but about five feet deep. But anyway, he drilled into that chamber and used a long rake device stuck in there, and he pulled out petrified antler, petrified animal dung, Hmm. Uh, cat hair, uh, I believe it was red human hair, and then also some type of fiber similar to fiber optic, where light would hit one end of it and it would go out the other end. Hmm. So very, very interesting, if you know, evidence that he pulled out of that chamber. So if an excavation can ever be done, there's going to be additional, you know, exciting information inside the ark. Huh. A lot of petrified timbers inside the structure. So here's a view of the visitor center. Uh, when I was on the ark, you can see a tour group on the right mm -hmm. who are looking down upon the ark. Here is a close-up of the ark using a telephoto. Different lighting, you can see different features of the arc. And again, you can see the rib timbers on this uh, starboard side on the side of the arc. Mm -hmm. And here's another view from the stern. And now, Arthur Brandenburger, a photogrammetrist, he said, I have no doubt at all that this object is a ship in my entire career. I've never seen an object like this in a stereo photo. Hmm. This is one of the people back in 1960 that went out to the ark site, and he believed that this, you know, really was the ark site because of the incredible uh, shape of it, you know, and being a boat, and of course finding out later that its exact length is stated in the Bible. So, Dr. Sally Bayrock Tutin, he is a geologist there in Turkey, and he believes fully that it is the Noah's Ark site. Hmm. He said it's a man-made structure and for sure it's Noah's Ark. He's been on the History Channel talking about this Ark site. He also said very similar to an Ark in the dimensions, the length, the width, and the height are very, very close to the figures given in the books, such as, I don't know if the Quran, the Quran does mention something about Noah's Ark, but of course he's referring also to the Bible. Now, that subsurface interface radar I spoke about earlier, the manufacturer, uh, Mr. White, showed them the printout where he ran it over the top of the arc and he got some readings of the rib timbers inside. And the manufacturer of it stated, this data does not represent natural geology. Hmm. It's a man-made structure. The reflections are occurring way too periodic, too periodic to be random, 
natural type interfaces. So they are saying this is a, a man-made structure that he ran the radar device over top of. Regardless of whether you believe it is Noah's Ark, it is a boat, it's man-made, it's something. Yes. Now here's the rib timber in 1987 when they had the visitor center ceremony dedicating the site for Noah's Ark National Park. He had his radar device out, running it over top of the ark, and he said, hey, there's something under the ground here, and the authorities said, dig it up. So he dug up this nice deck timber. It's in three different layers, hmm. and on the left edge of the photo here, at the end of it, is some glue oozing out. So there was glue applied between each layer, and they were uh, combined together. You know, plywood is stronger than wood of just one single layer. And that's what we have here. The wood was applied in layers and it was mm. glued between each layer. And of course it was tested and found to have a high level of organic carbon in it, consistent with petrified wood. So again, we have wood in Noah's Ark. In the center of this photo, you see some uh, protrusions sticking up in a row. There's four or five going horizontally across. These are vertical deck support timbers. Um, or wait a minute, in this case, these are horizontal timbers that would have come out across the deck. We're standing on the center of the deck. These are over on the side, and they would have extended toward us, toward the center of the deck of the arc. So these are horizontal deck support posts. They're basically you know, broken off at this point, but you're seeing a random or actually a, a systematic pattern here in a row. You've got five in a row here of the horizontal deck support uh, timbers. Here is a model, a uh, computer model of what the arc could have looked like based upon Ron scans. There would have been a door here in the right front, the bottom of our picture here in the right front. Uh, and there's uh, stairs going down, a ramp system in that area, according mm. to the scans. Here's the arc compared to the bounty. You can see how much large. a large ship. Yes, very, very large. And uh, Dr. Ekim Akregal, he is a prominent uh, archaeologist in Turkey some years back. At any rate, it is a ship, an ancient ship. It must be preserved, he said. So again, we have confirmation of the ark site. Now here's my friend Jerry Bowen and his son Jeremy standing on the bow of the ark with the lesser air rat in the distance in the center of the photo and the greater air rat would be to our left in the clouds. But they're standing here on the bow of the ark, uh, the very front. And this is a picture from that spot looking downwards. You're looking down the length of the ark with the rock intrusion on our left center there, and in the bow, you cannot see, or the stern, excuse me, the back of it in the distance there, you can't see too well in the shadows, but you're standing here on the front of the arc, looking downwards, the length of it. And here's a photo of myself standing on the arc um, with the valley down below, the, the valley of eight. Here's a drone shot of the arc formation on the, kind of the right side of our picture. We see the arc, and you can see how the sides have been skewed outwards mm -hmm. because it's been torqued or turned on this rock intrusion on the right side of the arc. Now that becomes obvious in that, that yes, shot. Yes, it's been twisted on that rock, and it caused the right side to splay outwards. Now this is another picture from our drone of the arc. You can see the symmetrical shape. 
with the bow in the distance, and you see the nice curved um, center of the arc and the sides and so forth. But uh, we're heading away from Noah's Ark and we're heading toward a village where these sea anchors were hung okay. from the front of the ark. Along the way, we see some of the little village structures, very primitive. And this is the village where the sea anchors are held. There is a village of Arzep, it's called. And here are some of the sea anchors. We can see some crosses carved on them. And there are eight crosses, on, typically? On, on these? some of them, yes. Okay. Some have more, some have less, but some have the eight for the eight people. Uh, that were on the ark. Now, how many of these are out there? I mean, there's like 13. 13, so yes. there's something significant yeah. with these. Right, right. And this was a rather large one lying down, and uh, at the top of it that we'll see, at the top of the picture here on it, there's some ancient writing, which I believe they could not uh, translate or decipher mm -hmm. this, some type of ancient writing. Now, how can we tell that these are anchor stones? We'll see here shortly. Uh, some have the holes drilled in them that you can see. Now, this one here, it has a nice large one in the center for Noah. The left bottom here would represent Mrs. Noah. Then there's three smaller crosses representing the three sons. Mm. And then three very small crosses representing the wives of the sons. Now this is a very large anchor stone, and authors said that there's four feet of this underground. Mm. So if you combine it with seven feet above ground, then you're talking about 11 feet, uh, the length of this anchor stone. You see the nice hole drilled in the top of it where a rope would be pulled, and that would then would be attached to the what I believe is the front of the ark. As we have on the model here. Yes, now. as we saw on the model. Where do we get this idea that they were on the front of the ark? Where does this come from? Uh, if you look on, on Wikipedia as one source under sea anchor, you'll see that they are attached to the front of a boat, and it causes, when the waves come, it causes the rear to come in line uh, perpendicular to the waves. It causes the rear to line up and causes this, the front, to be facing the oncoming waves. Even wind will do that. Wind will blow this around and so the front's right into uh, the wind and it did that also with the waves. So this is a perfect design that God came up with. Now here's uh, myself standing beside the large anchor stone. And here's a close-up. We can see Mount Ararat in the distance, and we can see that these holes are drilled out from opposite sides, and then the rope pulled through, a knot tied, and then they, the rope would be brought up to the front of the ark. Now, over in the Mediterranean, of course, there are some sea anchors used there, but look how small they are. They're smaller because we were talking about smaller boats. Mm -hmm. So this is at uh, Caesarea there along the Mediterranean, and you can see several different types of the sea anchors along the Mediterranean. Here's an anchor stone here with no carvings on it, but it's lying flat, and you can see the hole that's been drilled through it hmm. where a rope would have been pulled through. But uh, in this one, you can see a, an ornate anchor stone. Now, these have been found to the east and to the west of Arzeb on opposite outlying areas. This is a Byzantine-style cross um, anchor stone. 
which would date back to the third century, very ornate, very ancient style. So process. they have these stones all over the place, and are we assuming that all of them belong to one ship, the Noah's Ark? I would assume so, since the size of them. Yeah. You know, and there's no, the bodies of water nearest this are 75 miles away, mm. you know, two different directions. So there's no local large body of water. There's another clue that this must be it. Yes, yes. So the ark was floating through this area, if you can imagine, you know, 4,000 feet of water above this, and they decided to cut these anchor stones off. They fell down to the bottom, mm -hmm. to this area here, and then the ark floated over to the current mountain where it is today right? and kind of came to rest in that spot. And the current would push these stones around, I'm assuming, and before yes. they landed. Yes. This is one on the opposite side. We saw one that would have been toward the east. Now this is the western extreme edge. It's on top of a hill. We could see Arzep in the distance and Noah's Ark would be further that direction, you know, another 10 miles down the mountain range is where the Ark is. Now this is one out in the outlying area where it was not near the village, but you can see a really nicely drilled hole in this one. There's no crosses on it. It may have been buried for a long time and it kind of came to view later. But uh, one has to wonder how they drilled those holes. Yeah, well of course they had metal tools. So maybe not that so impossible. Yeah. They were able to yeah drill them out using their metal tools uh, built before the flood, the tools. So, again, that's you know evidence of them having tools. A wooden tool would not drill that out. No, impossible. Like National Geographic tried to say. So, here's a nicely drilled hole. You can see how symmetrical it is. Very nicely drilled out. When we were in the village there, uh, we went to one of the homes, and in his courtyard, he had collected some nice carvings. Now this was looks very ancient. It's some type of ram, it appears, uh, with the head on the right side here. No telling how old this is. This could be two or three thousand years old. Yeah, there's uh, the horns etched yes. on the side of the, of the right, head. Right, right. Very unique. It looks like it's got a lot of weathering to it. Here's another interesting carving. There's a man on the right side here. It looks like he's lifting up some sort of battle axe or something. His arm is mm. left arm is stretched forward. A lot of history going back. This is where civilization began at this exact spot. I said, yes, it is. Essentially, you know, it is. Yeah. This was a place, another place, where the taxi stopped. It stopped running that day when Ron went out here in 77. We saw the anchor stones where the taxi stopped, or the sea anchors, and now we have the remains of a building. Hmm. The walls were higher when Ron first saw this in 1977. And he said that the windows were angled back. The sides of the windows were angled back so mm. that light could come in better. And mm. if you notice some uh, castles or fortresses in ancient times, they would have angled side windows also so they could shoot arrows out at a better angle. Ah. Out of the window? Yes. This way or this way? And so when I was there one time, I thought, I wonder if I could find some stones that were angled like Ron Wyatt mentioned. And so I found several of these 45 degree cut stones that would have been part of the windows, mm. the sides of the windows. 
Interesting. Going up the side of the window there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On, okay. on either side, there'd be 45 degree cut stones, and that's what that is. Normally in a house, you don't have 45 degree cut stones. You've got square stones and right. so forth. So these would have been going up the side of the window frame on, to the right, to the left. So it validates the story. Yeah. Right there. So again, this is validation of what he was saying that uh, the window openings were very unique, something you don't normally see. So uh, Ron found a uh, tombstone in front of this building, and it had a rainbow carved on it. Hmm. And beneath that was a boat shape on a wave. And out from the boat were these eight people walking. And the second most important person was a woman because of her long hair. She had her head down and her eyes closed. And he took it to be that that was Mrs. Noah's tombstone. Okay. And he showed this to someone later. And they came back and they paid a local three or four hundred dollars to dig up her sarcophagus. Ah, so there was, they knew something was underneath here. Yes, and uh, the sarcophagus that Ron heard was 18 feet long. Hmm. So that would make her you know, approximately 16, 15 feet in height. Now, we know before the flood that they lived longer, and from what they've understood is that the oxygen level was higher before the flood, Perhaps there was a water canopy around the earth that protected them from UV rays. It's what they call the hyperbolic, hyperbolic theory? Type of, yeah. Okay. That would give you, you know, better strength, better growth, and so forth. And so these people, they live longer, they live larger, but because of sin, sadly, we've gone down in size. We live in an atmosphere um, post-flood that doesn't enable us to live longer. And, but before the flood, they were much taller, much larger. And uh, Ron said that on Mrs. Noah was a golden bodice with jewels and so forth. Oh, so there was a skeleton there? Yes, there was a skeleton, and she had a necklace. And that he said that these were sold in the black market for $100 million. Hmm. So. Not surprising since that little pomegranate we saw in the last episode was. Half a, million dollars. half a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is the site of apparently where uh, Mrs. Noah was buried, and there's some type of building there. And here we're kind of walking around the remains. And the locals heard that some gold had been found up here, so they came up to this building and systematically destroyed it, mm. looking for gold. So the building is no more, just the stones there. But here we see a stone with a couple uh, crosses on it, mm -hmm. perhaps Armenian. Armenian Christians lived here mm. uh, up until around 1915 or so before they were killed off. What became of that sarcophagus? It was hauled away. We don't know mm. where it is. Yeah, all evidence was hauled away, sadly. So out from the house, up, up just above the house, we see the remains of fences, stone fencing. We're told that he practiced husbandry animal husbandry is one of the ways to practice husbandry. And so he had these fences, Noah did, in the area of this house or area of the structure where he was keeping animals. And uh, we can see the fences in the background, once again, in the countryside. 
Now we're going further up the hillside. We're looking down toward the remains of that structure or house. And we can see RZEP in the left side of the photo. Um, in the distance where the anchor stones or sea anchors are found. And we're going further up the hillside. We see the fencing going horizontally across the screen here as we're going up the hillside. But in the center of the photo, you see a large stone kind of standing by itself in the mm -hmm. grass there. And that's where we're headed. Here I'm standing next to it. This was an altar, Ron believed, that Noah used. Of course, if he was 16 feet tall, this would be perhaps chest high or you know, just above the waist slightly perhaps. This would be perfect for him to use. Hmm. And if he offered a sacrifice here or they had a worship service here of some type, people could gather below and they could hear his voice really well, you know, type of natural amphitheater. We can see the village of Arzep in the hmm. distance where the sea anchors are located. Here, standing atop the large stone, looking down in the valley below. And again, we can see the fencing going out where Noah practiced husbandry. And then here's a photo of a corral where the animals were held in here that were going to be sacrificed. We believe that this is the area where the ark was found and the remains of uh, Noah, the remains of the sea anchors and so forth, and very exciting information. Well, thank you for sharing that. This is unprecedented information on Shabbat Live. So thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you. Appreciate I'm it, sure we have just scratched the surface here according That's to what right. I see on arkdiscovery.com. That's right. So if you want to know more about Kevin Fisher and the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark and Sodom and Gomorrah and all these wonderful things we've talked about on this series, go to arkdiscovery.com. Check it out. There's lots of information there.